BBC Radio 5 Live. What's that? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> um don't know, have we started? Have we have we start we've start we've started! What? Robbie, we've started! We've started. Okay. Oh my goodness, we've started by stealth. Um hello everyone. Uh, this is the opening bit of the podcast, of course, and you would have uh, realised by now that it's not Mark and Simon. It's uh, me, Sanjeev Bhaskar, and Robbie Collin. Hello. Hi. It's been some time, hasn't it? It has been a little while, but it's, it's nice to be back. And normally we record these at the end of the show, so we've got a sort of a sense of what's been accomplished in the past two hours. At present, now, this is, this is beforehand. It's, 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 it's Give everything still, away. I mean, it's sealed kind of, behind a, ve- a veil of mystery. Yes, but I'm... I, I, Who knows what's going to happen? January was the last time we uh, did one of these together. Goodness. And, and when well we have back. recorded these opening things afterwards, I have been acting, because that's what I do, acting as if it was before the show. Sorry, and I've just blown your cover. You have? Well, oh, well. well. Um, can I just say a quick thank you? Um, uh, listening to the podcast last week, and uh, Edith very kindly and, and, and in a very lovely way read out an email from Matt Bates, whose younger brother uh, graduated from Sussex University a couple of weeks ago, where I happened to be Chancellor. And, uh, and I made some statement references, which uh, what was interesting was that during the week, because there's about 4,500 students that I greet on stage during that week. Um, and there were probably, there was, there was a handful every single day that made a kind of, some sort of wittertainment reference to me on stage as they were collecting their... With grief. Which is lovely. It was what just through. No, no, it's just beautiful. Beautiful moments, beautiful moments. But um, Matt Bates very kindly and uh, wrote in a very sweet yes, email. Yes, right. this is a very moving uh, account of the of the address. Yeah, it was kind of, I mean, it's. It, I think he made it sound better than it probably actually was. So I, I appreciate uh, his efforts uh, a lot. So thank you, Matt, and um, and to your younger brother. You didn't mention in uh, the um, email. Otherwise, I would have read that out. Four and a half thousand names, mate. I, I couldn't remember. I greet them all by name on the day and at the moment. So in the moment when they cross, I'll say whatever their name is, mm-hmm. just to personalise that. How long does it take you to remember them all? What the names? The names. I yeah. don't remember the names. People call out the name and then I repeat it. Oh, okay, okay. You know, I, I just remember you kind of backstage with a script. You know, reading these sides. Trying Four and a half thousand names, Robbie. Well, it's kind of you've like... done a lot of television. You, you don't have to remember lot... anything you in television. A lot of words in your time in theatre. You have to remember a lot of words, but um, no, it, you know, I have to remember the names for about four seconds. Okay, and then, pff, and then he, gone. Yeah, it has to go yeah. because the next name is kind of like is at you. You know, um, bless you. Uh, <laughs> Here we, it's all right. I just did, did it myself. Um, we have um, is it another uh, uh, lovely email that's been sent in. This is from Andrew Augustine Jones, who says, having enjoyed a rather long and traffic-ridden journey on a recent Friday, I had to delve into the back catalogue for Wittertainment and realised I'd missed the Sanjeev and Robbie episode at the start of the year. Reminiscing. Uh, it included scathing reviews of The Greatest Showman, not just a Mark thing, clearly, and a more balanced view on Murder on the Orient Express, Moto, <laughs> which I agreed with. Robbie had too many top names and not enough story. You stick by that with... Uh, 100%. Okay. With steely conviction. Indeed. Then, whilst they reviewed Paddington, Robbie mentioned the same person behind those films is making the Faraway Tree films. I literally punched the air and shouted out as if I'd been watching England score in the World Cup, which they did. I love the books and have been able to share these with my three and four-year-old through the audiobook medium. 
To think that they will soon be able to watch them on screen has got me really excited. Do you know any more about where they are up to with this? And, oh, tell her to Jason Isaacs, Tinky Tonk and all that, Andy. I don't personally. I, I know that it's not... I don't think it's Paul King that's directing. He's gone on to do something else, which is quite exciting, but I can't remember off the top of my head what it is. It's Simon Farnaby who adapted yeah, Paddington's wrote, stories yeah. for the... He adapted it into the screenplay. And it's just what really appealed to me is this idea that he could take something that is... Uh, you know, a, ch- a classic of children's literature, but it's, it's it's kind of of its time. And he can sort of update it without it feeling overtly updated, you know, really kind of stay true to the spirit of it. And if he can do the same uh, with the Faraway Tree stories, then that'll be terrific, surely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's he's a great director. He's got great visual eye, but I think he also has a real sense of understanding, you know, what kids will kind of really appreciate without kind of you know, uh, um, cutting the adults out of it. Not in a kind of, you know, let's put some grown-up jokes in. But I think he's found that, that um, you know, that biting point. Yes. Between the two. Certainly did with, with Paddington, anyway. Um, now, you know the um, uh, the podcast award I do uh, know goes on its well, travels. Yes. Um, well, we got this from Russell Watkins, who says, a quick missive to confirm that I've now handed the award over to Neil of Derby. And doubtless he'll be troubling your inbox shortly. For my part, despite tweeting a photo of the award in row H, seat 14, watching Mission Impossible 17, I failed to deliver on my ambitions for the roving polycarbonate prize. I live in Derbyshire and wanted to picture the award looking meaningfully out over Derbyshire from Stanage Edge, much like Ikea, sorry, Kira Knightley in Pride and Prejudice. He said that, not me. My plan was scuppered by the only day of rain for months, hence the cinema trip. Um, so it's on its way. I didn't get the kind of uh, the cinematic shot he wanted. But, but it did see a great film. It did see a good film. Uh, and he ends with saying, I suffer from a relatively physically benign pigment issue called vitiligo. So I wondered if we could establish a vitiligo vestry or vestibule, you choose, for me and my fellow under-pigmented Wittitanies. Best make it a shady spot, though. Uh, well, I think we'll refer that upstairs to people who make those kind of decisions. I, I like That's vestibule. That's vestibule good. is a good word, isn't it? Good. Do you have a vestibule? I don't know. I'm going for a checkup soon. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> get a cream for it. Uh, so thanks, Russell, uh, for that. Um, so those are our podcasts. How long have we got? We've got a couple of minutes. Um, so you, you've seen a few of the films. I haven't seen too many films that, uh, uh, this week that are coming out. You've seen a few. I've seen quite a few. Those, we're covering seven, apparently. Maybe we're not. I don't know. Who, who, who can say? We may not get through all seven. But the aim is to address seven of the umpteen new releases this week. Uh, and uh, and I spoke to Denzel Washington um, for The Equaliser 2. And uh, it's one of those rare occurrences, actually, where I actually spoke to him this morning. It's usually, you know, you speak to them a couple of days before, or two, three days before, but it just sort of uh, fell into place that he was here this morning. So uh, it is kind of fresh off the tape machine. Um, I was quite nervous, actually. You can imagine. Here. The man has presence. He really does. And also, you know, you think about the range of stuff he's done. Yes, right. The last thing I think I saw him in was Fences, possibly. Oh, no, Roman J. Israel, Esquire. Yeah. Yes, right. And then Fences, I think, before that. It, but, which yeah. he directed as well, yeah. Very kind of, you know, substantial, rich character parts. I, I can understand. No, he's, he's very, very present. And also, do you know the thing is, the thing is, you never know with kind of uh, good actors, great actors, um, who you love on screen, you don't know what they're like going to be like on person, and particularly when they're promoting something. You know, they, they, these are interviews and questions they may have been asked a hundred, over a hundred times, and you never know what 
be the dynamic between you and them is going to be. You know, have they just come off of a, a another interview where they're just really annoyed about it? Have they come off another interview being really happy, and then you start talking and they kills their mood? I mean, you have no no idea. So it's always slightly nerve wracking uh, for me, certainly going into it. Um, but he was delightful, I have to say. Good. Uh, I look forward to hearing. I, I I hope that comes across. He he was in in fine fettle. He was uh, uh, in good humour, and um, and we just again, you never have enough time. You know, it's kind of there. There is maybe one interview I did where we had more than enough time, and I wouldn't be and so you, ungracious as to it? mention. No, no I wouldn't. Um, but generally, you know, you are up against it. And uh, but no, he was great. Uh, he had someone else in the room as well, which doesn't always happen. Which is, is there someone to, who, who will throw themselves at you if you ask? Do you know what? I, th- I think he was security. I think that because I've never seen you, you sometimes have press people who kind of sit in the room with them as well. But this guy was kind of in my eye line slightly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there, he was just there to psych me out. <laughs> right. it's, he's it's so, staring you down as you try and think of the next question. Yeah. Yeah. Or try. maybe he's trying to mind manipulate me into asking certain questions and not asking other questions. I don't think I was mind manipulated. I don't know. I don't. People will be able to find out themselves when they, we'll when they listen to. We'll it. see. Yeah. Um, so we got uh, those shows. We got the top ten as ever. We've got some of the correspondents coming up. We've and got Jason Statham. We've got a giant shark Jason in the same film. Statham, shark, kick it. Does he say? Does he kick the shark at all? Do you does know he physically he... punch the shark? Is or is he? There was. Well, look. Th- th- there was some. He tried to keep that ambiguous during the campaign. So I think that probably qualifies as a spoiler. I'm not going to say th- th- there, there is. There's certainly Statham versus Shark with no kind of intermediary apparatus. Oh, I think it's fair to say that. Yeah. You know, he's not always tackling the shark from the safety of a submersible vehicle. But I'm not going to particularly give away the the moves that he pulls. Okay. All I'm saying is in, in the original 1966 Batman movie, Adam West as Batman punches a shark in the solar plexus. That's right. And then pulls out the shark repellent. Then pulls out the shark repellent. Here's the show. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's Robbie and Sanjeev sitting in for Mark and Simon, who are obviously traversing the world on the summer cruise. Um, and so we are, what are we, the B team, C team? I've lost bus service. Yeah. D. I, I reckon you're B. I think I'm much lower. It balances out. I think uh, I'm an M or a so Q or something. So, so, so what's the median of that? G? H? Probably a G, isn't it? It's High okay. G? It's okay. Yeah, you're a musicologist. Right. Yeah, could be a G. Are you happy with a G? It sounds like a G. Yeah, that's fair enough. You can tune from a G, can't you? Possibly. Okay. An A is, an a is ideal, but then, you know, we know that. Well. Okay, well, that moment has passed. Um, we're here until four o'clock and uh, we're uh, reviewing these movies. We're reviewing The Meg, Unfriended, Dark Web, Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, The Darkest Minds, The Domestics, The Negotiator and Dog Days. And we also have uh, an interview with a very special guest. We do. Denzel Washington, who stars in The Equaliser 2, which is out next week. So it'll be reviewed then. But we'll hear from Denzel in about half an hour. And if you want to join in with the show, of course, you can get in touch with us in all the usual ways. Email mayo at bbc.co.uk. Text 85058. And you'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Wittertainment. Um, Shall we start, Robbie, as is traditional... With the UK box office top 10. Let's. Let's do that. And at number 10, it is Ocean's 8. Yes, which is in the uh, in its seventh week in the chart. It took uh, a total of 10.9 million so far, which is, it's, I mean, it's 
it's been a hit. It's not been a hit on the same level as the original Steven Soderbergh trilogy, which I think is interesting. And, and to me, that kind of rings true because I really enjoyed the, the the glamour and the kind of upbeat energy of the new all-female cast. But what I felt it was missing compared to the certainly the original Soderbergh film, Ocean's Eleven, is that kind of sense of trickery and ingenuity. I don't know if you remember, how much you remember, but the, the final heist of the original Soderbergh film. Yeah, it was exciting. But it kind of, it was it was very exciting. But what I loved about it is it, it kind of tricks you, the viewer, twice over. And it runs something you think is happening. I won't give it away in case people haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, go and see it. It's great fun. But this, um, this idea that it shows you the heist unfolding in a way that you think is, you know, you think you know what's happening. Then there's a rug pull and something else completely different was actually happening. You're like, oh, right. And then once, certainly once I left the cinema, once you finished the, the, the DVD um, streaming, whatever it is now, the, the way that you watch it, you realise that you've been tricked again because part of the heist, as you saw it, couldn't have happened. And it's to do with the um, the kind of counterfeit money, the fake, the replacement money that's involved in this in this bank rate. And it's, it, it reminds me, it's kind of like that sort of Darren Brown thing of when, you know, half an hour after watching his stage show or something, you're kind of reflecting, going, wait a minute. You know, not only was I tricked, I was tricked about the way in which I was tricked. And it's that kind of, you know, cleverness upon cleverness that I enjoyed about the original three, particularly the the, the first Soderbergh film that I didn't quite feel kind of came through in this one. But also you can you can feel tricked in a good way where you kind of oh, go, totally, oh, totally, totally, yeah. Sometimes you can just feel tricked when you go, oh, come on. It's that way. It's when the film is kind of being playful with you and saying, ah, and ah, and ah, and it's like a really good magic show. That's Wait, like how? Like, ah, and ah, and ah, and ah, you know, and over and over, you know, all these kind of revelations being pulled out like, you know, handkerchiefs or something. Um, that's when it works. And when it feels like it's it's a cheat, you know, oh, we told you this is happening, but actually this is happening. That's that's very irritating. And it's a difficult balance to strike, but Soderbergh is someone, and not just in the Ocean's Eleven films, but in, in, in elsewhere from his filmography, it's, he, he's done that time and again. This film didn't have that. And maybe it's a bit fair to kind of harp back and say, well, it's not like the last one. So, But I hope... I'm guessing they they went with Ocean's 8 so they could do an Ocean's 9 and an Ocean's 10, which would then take you up to Ocean's 11, that may be something that they they approach in the later ones. And certainly, you know, it's made a respectable amount of money. They, they could well push forward for a sequel to this. At number nine, we have Skyscraper. Yes, which is in its fourth week in the chart and has taken 5.1 million, so less of a resounding success. This is... Uh, after San Andreas and after Rampage, this is another kind of a fantastical rerun of the September 11th rescue effort starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. This is now part of his, a component of his career, is that he will wade into crumbling skyscrapers and rescue family members and, 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 uh, and people who work, uh, who works in these demolished buildings in this way that's kind of like overtly calling back the, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. This is just now part of what Dwayne The Rock Johnson does. I have to say, after having gone all in on Rampage earlier in the year, I'm really glad I did because I thought Skyscraper was a bit of a letdown. I know Mark reviewed it really warmly. He found it very funny. It's directed by a guy called Ross and Marshall Thurber, who was, I think, probably best known for Dodgeball, the sports comedy spoof thing that he did with Ben Stiller. I was expecting this to be much funnier than it was. It, to me, it almost felt like they'd, they'd read the script and then at the last minute they thought, wait a minute, we, why don't we just play this straight? And they'd just gone through with a red pen, you know, remove the joke here, remove the joke here, remove the joke here. And then they leave in this kind of thing about duct tape and, you know, there's a, there's a few little funny asides. But to me, it just felt as if the the soul had been kind of vacuum cleaned out of it just, you know, very shortly before they, they, they went to shoot it. At uh, number eight, we have Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And this is a hit. This has been around for nine weeks and has taken 40.9 million, which is more than anything else in the top 10. Although next week, it is very likely to be overtaken by two uh, films further down the chart. I mean, 
for me, the problem with any Jurassic Park sequel is that you have to take into account the fact that multiple disasters have occurred on this island uh, in connection with the dinosaurs in, in, in the very, very recent past. And you have to have people go, and yet it's still a good idea to go back here. We need to convince the crew that, yes, we need to travel back to this island and you know subject us, ourselves to all this danger again. None of the sequels have really, for me, convincingly done that. And this one with, you know, not only the dinosaurs are in trouble with a volcano, it's just steer, steer clear, mate. It's not worth the trouble. You know, there's these mad kind of prehistoric beasts running around. There's lava raining down from the skies. It, it didn't sell me that that was ever something that they would do is decide to go back. And, you know, we'll talk about Jaws later in connection to the mech. But it, it made me reflect that what Spielberg did with Jaws was he kind of set up this completely new genre of film, a subgenre of film, the shark attack movie. But as well as setting it up, he kind of exhausted it over the course of one film in that there was nothing more to say without being silly. You know, he'd kind of done all you could do with sharks in, in over the course of this one film. And I think Jurassic Park, in a strange way, is kind of the same with dinosaur films. You know, certainly dinosaur park films. Everything that was worthwhile and that you could do with that setup was done in the original Jurassic Park. And so the subsequent instalments have had to be more silly, more ludicrous, more preposterous, just purely in order to fill time before the end. We will come back to Jaws later, but I mean, also the reason that uh, the you know Shark Attack movies, I mean, also created the Summer Tentpole movie with the same film. Yes. Uh, was that um, because of the, the terrible mechanics of the shark, the way of shooting that, which was to use the POV of the shark, then gave it a kind of level of tension that would we would never have got with the mechanical shark yes. running around. Now we've got CGI, so we can make it all look very, very realistic. And I still remember going to see the first Jurassic Park and genuinely being wowed. I mean, I you know, I probably have the same expression on my face that Sam Neill had when he first sees the... And that's know. a classic Spielberg technique. Before he shows you something amazing, he shows you someone seeing something amazing. And he's almost like subconsciously cueing you, this is how you're going to react to it. Wait until you see this. My goodness, these guys are standing up in the car, they're moving their sunglasses. And that's what he does. And yeah, you're totally right. When when that... It's a brachiosaurus, right? The first one that they, they see? Uh, yeah. Either, sort of, yeah, that sort of thing. Or yeah. It's, a, a it's or eating, like, eating off the tree, very gentle. Long neck kind of thing. Pastoral scene. Yes. But it's the, the amazement that's packed into that shot is just kind of... Uh, yeah, I remember seeing it. It's, it's kind of unquantifiable it's even now. difficult to replicate that, yes. really. Um, uh, and at number seven, we have The First Purge. Yes, this has been around for five weeks and has taken 5.5 million. So again, it's doing, as, as the Purge films always do, it's doing pretty well. Um, to me, this, this entire franchise, it's a better premise. It, the, the premise works better than the execution. I really love the idea of this kind of annual horrific steam valve for America where, you know, all crime, including murder, is legal for one night. Um, the films never kind of quite dig into the subtext as much as as much as I'd like them to. The first part does it more so than than the other ones. To me, this was this was sort of on a, a par when I saw it with the Purge Anarchy, which is the second one. Is the most kind of overtly John Carpenter style sort of city escape film. Um, having you know, a few weeks have passed since I saw it, and now I think this is probably the best of the series. Um, it kind of appropriates quite newsy imagery in the in the early stages, stuff like Black Lives Matter protests and. Um, the uh, Charlottesville riots and all these kind of things. So it's, it's very keyed into America's present historical moment. And then once it's done that, it moves on to the John Carpenter stuff, the crazy camera angles, the really brightly coloured lights and stuff. Um, so yeah, of the four, the four? Yeah, the four. Is this, this is, is this the fourth one? This is the fourth. Because it's very confusing. It, it, serves, as a, yeah, it serves as a it's prequel. Fourth. It's the first time they trial run the, they trial ran the purge on Staten Island in, 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 uh, in New York City. Um, just to see how it would work, you know, a toe in the water to have people marginalising each other all night long, just, just to see if that's a good idea. 
spoiler, they thought it was. And then, you know, they did it many times um, hence. But yeah, so for, for me, this is the one that kind of engages most substantially with the with the, the ideas of the material, but while remaining a really exciting kind of survival horror, horror thriller. Um, I could, might, might I suggest uh, Jurassic Purge. Nice. So, like, let dinosaurs loose on stuff. Well, either way, yeah, just for one night. They're allowed to just (laughs) go and do what they want. Um, In case you're wondering about the cricket, by the way, uh, uh, updates from the cricket, there aren't any because it's raining and they've all had to go and uh, go back inside and play board games. Um, So at uh, number six, we have uh, Teen Titans, uh, which I have some um, correspondence, he said, reaching for it. Um, Teen Titans Go to the movies, to give it its full title. This is from Andy Bradshaw, who says, Teen Titans was the best DC film since Wonder Woman and second best since Dark Knight. Funny, tongue-in-cheek, very funny, rude, quite dark humour at times, looking at you, upbeat song, and genuinely laugh out loud all the way through. Went for my son's 10th birthday and the kids found it funny and engaging throughout. Unlike Incredibles 2, which they found boring in places. (sighs) Shock horror. All the adults laughed as much as the kids, maybe more so, as we were laughing at the kids and adult jokes. The last line and ending of the upbeat song, especially. This is from uh, Graham Troman, who says, I saw... Teen Titans go to the movies this morning and had an absolute blast. It sends up superhero films brilliantly whilst also celebrating them. And there was so much to enjoy for both children and their parents. The last line in particular drew a huge laugh from the adults in the room. It's silly, bizarre, intelligent and hilarious viewing, which is more than can be said for the hour and a half of dross known as Hotel Transylvania 3. How that film is more popular than TTGTTM is beyond me. What do you think? Yes, okay, so Teen Titans Go to the Movies is at number six in the chart this week and uh, Hotel Transylvania 3, spoiler alert, is at number five. But the gulf in uh, income between these two films is enormous. Teen Titans uh, took £389,000, which is, you know, okay. I'm I'm sure Warner Brothers were hoping for more. Uh, Hotel Transylvania took £1.4 So there's there's an enormous gap between the amount of people who are going to the cinema to see the spin-off from a Cartoon Network show and to see, you know, uh, the, the new Hotel Transylvania film, which very much kind of looks like a big budget animated feature. Teen Titans, on the other hand, you know, it's got the same kind of... Uh, simplistic is not doing it justice, but it's, it's, it's very kind of stylized, flat. It's, it's what is often described as the CalArt style in animation, which is kind of a mixture between uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, so the kind of strangeness of SpongeBob SquarePants, and the energy of Japanese anime and the, the kind of incredibly like high kinetic power of every single frame, you know, these big dynamic poses, things whistling through the air all the time. I loved Teen Titans Go to the Movies. It is incredibly funny. And it's the, the way in which it's funny, it reminded me of Captain Underpants last, uh, was that last summer, I think? And um, this idea, I saw it with my five-year-old and my three-year-old. And there were many moments throughout, they didn't get the sort of superhero satire send up spoofy stuff but the 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 sense of humor of the film is incredibly absurd and and silly and just like very very kind of a real pure daftness to it and it's that great thing where you are laughing for the same reason as your you know very very young children around you and you're all laughing at the same joke for the same for this exactly the same reason and that's something that's is pretty rare in cinema, you know it's, and and so the upbeat song is the absolutely the perfect example of this because it's such an addictive song i know edith and clarice played it on the show um once it's in your head it does not depart you yeah, know well. i saw i actually saw this film quite a long time ago i think it was about 2 months before because it was it was at quite an early screening and the song i've sung it to myself out loud at least once a day since then and that will continue uh 
for the foreseeable future, I think. Uh, at number four, we have Incredibles 2. Yes, which is uh, doing incredibly well, um, as, as one would expect of a sequel to one of the most popular Pixar films. It's on 39.8 million so far after four weeks around. This is one of the two films that I suspect will overtake Jurassic World uh, over the next seven days. Um, Incredibles 2, it's, it's, it's interesting because the, the gap between this and the original film our entire sort of superhero moment has occurred within these, uh, you know, within that time. The, the first film was out 2004. So this is kind of a, um, it was it was pre-Iron uh, Man, which was, of course, the film that sort of changed and brought in the idea of the cinematic universe, the idea that films could be connected and connected without necessarily being sequels. They could, they could happen concurrently. They could happen around one another rather than just being one story told in consecutive parts. So rather than kind of mimic any of that I, I love the way that, that Brad Bird has just kind of gone in and he said okay so I love this kind of Chuck Jones style animated slapstick from you know the 50s and I love mid-century modern design uh, and I love these kind of incredibly um, heroically staged action sequences with this great sense of you know space and environment and, and, and kineticism um, and I love sort of low-key domestic comedy and the film is just going to be this assembly of moments like this and I think the nature of that means that Incredibles 2, to me, felt more like a collection of very good ideas for films rather than necessarily one great one, as the original Incredibles did. But there's so much in this film of like serious cinematic value um, in so many different ways. You know, the design on one hand and then the slapstick violence on the other. But also, I think, you know, what's very clever, uh, I mean, Pixar films are generally pretty clever anyway, is that there is a built-in nostalgia in each of these films. You know, they pack, you know, enough... Clever sentiment, good jokes, um, you know, good voice casts. Enough that I think there's kind of, you know, uh, while you're watching it, by the end of a lot of the films, it's, you're almost nostalgic for the beginning of the film. I mean, it's really right. clever that, you know, Up did that, Coco did that, you know, um, the Toy Story films do that. And then when you do, you know, bring these characters back five or ten years later, I think, you know, the, something like uh, uh, Finding Dory was a much bigger hit than... Finding Nemo, for instance, in terms of making money, it was, it was absolutely massive. And I'm not sure whether it was necessarily a better film, but you could suddenly have this generation of people who, uh, and then, then bringing their children to it. Yes, then, right, exactly. You know I mean? There's almost cycle. an entire generation has passed since that first wave of Pixar films. And something else that's fascinating about that is the way in which the computer animation techniques have improved enormously in that amount of time. But the way in which these try and stay true to the, the visual spirit of the original, if you look at the animated models in Incredibles 2, there's a lot of physical detail around the eyes and the bridge of the nose. But as you move away from that part of the face, <laughs> even by the time you've reached the ears, they are stylized. They're not particularly highly detailed. There's not like a ear canal going in. You couldn't kind of reach out and stick your finger in or something like that. It didn't look like that. So they've kind of kept those simple character models. They've, they've, they've improved them where it matters, like right, right in the centre where you're going to be making eye contact with these characters. But as you get further from that, they've stuck true to the, um, the stylization of the earlier models in this really clever way. Uh, this is from Beck Parmento, who says, Incredibles 2 was a much more grown-up story than I expected. Loved the sound design and the 50s feel. Uh, liked that another character takes centre stage than what you expect. And as parents to a 14-month-old, me and my husband laughed a lot at Jack Jack's exploits. Uh, that at number four. At number three, we have Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, Bethany uh, Kalinix or Kalinichis 
or I'm sorry, Bethany, Bethany, um, having seen MI Fallout last week, I can say that it hasn't done anything to cure my four main phobias, heights, nuclear war, smallpox and Sean Harris. He's truly <laughs> terrifying as Solomon Lane, really creepy, but also magnetic. Overall, it's a great summer blockbuster, fabulously filmed with great use of the spectacular locations. An exhilarating, if slightly predictable ride, a great addition to the MI franchise. And a Jacob Lockett says, uh, Dear the two of you, very much like Tom Cruise at the end of one of his big action stunts, Mission Impossible Fallout completely uh, stuck the landing, which I think means pulled it off or sealed the deal. Every aspect of the film was technically flawless, coming as close to perfect as a film can reach. Needless to say, the action scenes were furiously ambitious and in many ways trendsetting. Tom Cruise, as usual, was on peak form as he attempted numerous death-defying feats that constantly forced me to catch my breath. Henry Cavill, too, was brilliant. Uh, as for the ever-talented Simon Pegg, he was to me the standout of the film. He really give really gave it his all, and I wouldn't mind him taking over as the lead in this franchise if and when Tom leaves. Thrilling, genre-defining, and filled with, with top-notch performances. This piece of cinema will make anybody an action fan. Uh, thank you, uh, Jacob Fraun, who's, who's in Pennsylvania, USA. Um, what do you reckon? Yeah, look, for me, best big film of the summer. I think it's wonderful. Ooh, I, I'm up and down on the franchise in general. I mean, Clarice Needeth did such a great job of covering this film. I don't want to kind of go back over the, the same points because I'm broadly in total agreement. The one thing I would add is I think the, the influence of Christopher Nolan on this film is extraordinary. Now, I'm generally... Uh, Christopher Nolan person. I will see the influence of Christopher Nolan in a burnt slice of toast. Uh, you know, if if it's possibly something there that I could link it to. But this is this is such a kind of and particularly from the Dark Knight. This film borrows structurally from the Dark Knight, visually from the Dark Knight a lot. When you have that car, the chase sequence through Paris with you know the prisoner in the van, the last minute change of plan, all this stuff. These are all kind of storytelling mechanisms to build tension that Nolan sort of introduced to the blockbuster playbook uh, ten years ago. And the idea that you can have those appearing in a Mission Impossible film, while at the same time Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise are paying tribute to Brian De Palma in the original Mission Impossible, there's all these little threads they pick up from there too. To me, I just found completely delightful. I'm, as I say, I'm up and down on this franchise quite a lot. Um, but this for me is not quite, you know, it's not quite up there with the original De Palma. I think probably after that is my favourite. Oh, that's high praise indeed. Uh, and number two, we have Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Here we go again, yeah. And uh, here you go again. In its third week, uh, it has taken 39.3 million to date, it's which impressive. is just extraordinary. This is the other film which is going to be overtaking Jurassic World for uh, Fallen Kingdom in short order. And we have some uh, we have some reactions on this one, right? Yeah, uh, this is uh, from Anna Lindsay, who says, For 98% of the movie, I wondered why Edith and Mark had cried so copiously. I mean, it was funny and life-giving and joyous, but far from sad. And then, at 99%, the tsunami of tears hit me and I sobbed, literally sobbed, all through the credits, right up until... made me laugh again. I need to go back and see again... Uh, was that? I need to go back and see it again to find out how they did that to me. OK, <laughs> she's going to go and see it again. Um, cheers and tears, Anna Lindsay. Um, I... Th- I I mean, I, I, I have a real weird relationship with the Mamma Mia films because I start watching them and I kind of go, do you know, I grew up with Bollywood films and um, I know how these things work. You know, it's high sentiment. People burst into song. Perfectly normal, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, in those worlds. And you go with it. And I sit there kind of going, oh, I'm really not sure about this because I kind of, the, the, I mean, the you know, the songs are brilliant and they are fantastic. Sometimes I'm craving just a different take on the songs. You know, like in uh, Moulin Rouge, 
what they yes. did with Roxanne. Yes, just instance. arrange it differently. Yes, it reinterpreted yep. the song. Yep. And with this, you have kind of, you know, great songs that are, you know, that people also want to hear the original arrangements because that's what's familiar and lovely. And, um, you know, when in Mamma Mia 2, when they start singing Waterloo, for instance, it's kind of fun, you know, the whole, it's in a restaurant and everybody joins in. But when you get to the saxophone break in Waterloo and somebody then starts to present a blow on a baguette, I kind of go, really? Yes, you right. really have to blow the baguette? Is there nothing else you could have done except blow the baguette? But the film crept up on me. And by the end of the film, I had tears running down my face. Oh, no, no, me too. Where do you me get too. to the end of it? And you know, it's, it's interesting because the moment for me that worked the best out of anything in Mamma Mia 2, and, you know, like everyone else, I'm falling over myself in, in, in the enjoyment in this film. It was, it was so, so much fun and, and really surprisingly moving. But the bit that really struck the chord with me is the reprise of SOS by uh, Pierce Brosnan. Now, Pierce Brosnan's SOS in the original film, already an iconic cinematic moment, I think we would agree. But the way in which he does, because he does reinterpret the song this time, um, with, I think you would say, a melancholic sort of bittersweet edge. Mm. That, you know, that cut me, to, that, that was that nice, cut me to the quick. But, and, and that's, you know, with maybe a few more moments like that, it would have, it would have been, you know, even better. It's, it's like they almost listened to what people said afterwards, because I'm pretty sure that in one of the sort of group songs, they faded Pierce's voice up and down <laughs> in a slightly judicious way. <laughs> you know, I could hear him and then, and then it was just miming and then his voice came in for a second. And so it was just enough to make you go, oh, no, he is there. He is there. But you're going, someone in a control room somewhere kind of said, put that fader down. Put that down. <laughs> um, we uh, will continue with the should we do um, Ant-Man? We're going to do Ant-Man. Ant-Man, number one. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yes, which actually took less money over the weekend than Mamma Mia, but because it had a day of previews built in, it kind of leapfrogs over to the top place in the chart. Look, for me, obviously, Avengers Infinity War is the landmark Marvel film of this, this year. I think it's the closest this generation probably has to an Empire Strikes Back moment with the ending of that film. But I think Ant-Man and the Wasp as an isolated film-going experience, is the better film. The, the, this, the more I think about it, despite its very small stakes comparable to the rest of the Marvel Universe, this is really, it's small, but it is perfectly formed. And, the, you know, the comedy works. The um, the stakes, although they're not enormous, do feel palpable. Um, it's a really fun cast of characters. Walton Goggins as this sort of just stereotypical standard bad guy. You know, he's not like a Marvel supervillain with this genius uh, plan and this incredible tech He's just a bad guy. I, I just love that. And so, yeah, for me, this is, as, as a standalone uh, pop culture item, this for me is better than Avengers of Infinity War, even though Infinity War is obviously like the big kind of monolithic uh, event. Uh, this is from Oliver Kirridge, who says, Ant-Man and the Wasp was a little too long and repetitive. The villain was not as easy to sympathise with as the writers seemed to think she was, and there were a couple of jarring cuts. But the laughs kept coming, and the inventive uses of the story's technology were always entertaining. Not their best, but far from being the worst. And Dean Jones says it might not be as strong as recent MCU releases, such as Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War, but Ant-Man and the Wasp is a light, breezy hit of escapism for a few hours. The action is just as inventive, if not more so than the original, making great use of the power sets. Most of the humour worked. Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly are a good pairing the supporting cast are decent and i liked christoph beck back doing the score uh, villains are okay but nothing particularly stand out and michelle pfeiffer felt very underused but a fun time nevertheless so that is your top 10 it's robbie collin and sanjeev baskar in for simon and mark on five live the equalizer 2 is out next week and earlier today i spoke to its star denzel washington we'll hear that conversation after this clip 
How you doing? I'm the uh, Lyft driver that you called to take home your girlfriend. Not a girlfriend, man. Oh, credit card was invalid. Come in. There you go. Mm. Pay yourself whatever and uh, give yourself a nice tip. Thank you. You're not gonna ask me if she got home okay? <laughs> this is the point where usually I'd uh, give you a chance to do the right thing, but not tonight. Tonight I'm gonna need your cameras, cell phones, anything you might have used to record what you did to her. You knocked on the wrong door tonight, Pops. So that was a clip from The Equalizer 2, and uh, I'm delighted and, and a little bit overawed to be joined by its leading actor, Mr. Denzel Washington. Pleasure. How Good morning. How are you? Um, should we just leap straight in? Go for it. Okay. So at the end of The Equalizer, uh, we leave Robert McCall having a cup of tea uh, in a diner, um, having demolished a Russian crime syndicate <laughs> right, in right. Boston, as you yeah, do. All in the day's work. <laughs> Um, could you just set up uh, for our listeners where we find Mr. McCall in Equalizer 2? Well, at the end of the Equalizer, he sends out a message that he's sort of available for hire four years ago. Four years later, we see that he's, I think, a bit, I, I don't know if the word is healed, but more at peace with himself, willing to be around people, still working, still on the job. Uh, so when we see him on this train without giving it all away, he still looks somewhat the top of his head like the guy we know, but he's got some other things going on. But we know who he is, and we know, oh, maybe that's not really his, but he's doing, what is he doing? And and he takes care of business, and we cut back, and you see that he's, oh, he's living in this flat with uh, just these regular folks in, 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 in Boston. But what was intriguing for me about this script uh, and, and and it's a testament to Richard Wank's writing was the relationship with this young kid, hmm. this young black kid who's troubled and, and, and needs help. What more do we know? Because we knew very little about uh, McCall in, in the first movie. You know, what, what do we know more about him this time? Not much. Yeah, I was say, <laughs> and that's still, okay. Yeah. And that's okay. The mystery man comes to town and what's, well, I mean, well, we know initially, oh, bang, he's still at work. He's still, you know, doing what he does on, on, the, on the train scene in Turkey. But I think that's a part of it. And I think it's a good setup, like bang. And then, oh, I don't know, he's a Lyft driver. Right. Yeah. A, a Lyft driver, because we don't have Lyft here. That's kind of like, like Uber? an Uber yeah, or something like that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's part of the appeal, isn't it, to an audience, is that he's a regular guy doing regular jobs and yet has this kind of, he's driven to do this kind of sideline. Uh, the, 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 the him being the Lyft driver, the Uber driver thing, I thought it was a great way of collecting little stories. It was beautiful way in, great, great, really great kind of short, by great the shorthand. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and and again, and you know uh, the, the 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 story of the, the 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 elderly man that he's driving and how that you know in the painting and, and without giving it away and how that all pays off. Well, that was the thing that was interesting to me about this film was that you actually saw him connected to a lot more people right. than you did in the first one. Right. And and within that, there seemed to be relationships of some kind, of some sort. Um, the, the most crucial one being with, I, I guess, well, Miles and also uh, the characters played by uh, Melissa. Melissa and Bill Pullman. Mm. Uh, I think they're the only couple you see. Yeah. 
in yeah. in the films, right? Oh yeah, kind of, yeah. it's almost like a surrogate, yeah. surrogate family for mm-hmm. him. And that no, and that they're the only people you see that really knows him, right? I mean, really knows him. You know. Is there, how would you describe him? I mean, is he a vigilante? Is he an avenging angel? Is that? I don't think we have to. You can call <laughs> him what you want. He's a mystery. You know, I, I don't think he walks by the mirror and goes, "Hey, I'm a vigilante." You know, he he he's he's a helper. He's a he he's he has certain gifts, and I think he understands he 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 needs to use his God given gifts. Some of us have to do the dirty work. Nobody wants to see that. We just want peace. We want comfort and safety. And there are those who go out and and fight the wars for us. And 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 he's one of those. So basically, you're leaving that interpretation up to the audience, right? As to who he is, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. Should I give you mine? Do you want yes. to give mine? I thought he was like a samurai. Oh, because okay. you had this kind of guy who uh, there's there's a Zen uh, element to him. So when you see him on his own, he's he's reading a book, drinks a lot of tea, which obviously makes him very popular in this country. One fork, one knife, one spoon. (laughs) And also there's a ritual to the way he uh, takes his tea as well. Um, And all of those things struck me of those kind of those sort of uh, characters, those samurai characters who went around helping people. They were obviously trying to deal with something. The, The outside world was quite violent to them. They find that inner peace. So I'm going samurai. I'm running with it. (laughs) No, but that's that. You're right. You're right. Coming back to a character, you know, the first time around with a character, you you build a character from nothing, and you're introducing him to an audience, and the writer sort of slowly uh, establishes him, his rituals. Right. And I was wondering what your preparation was like returning to a character, which is something you haven't. Good question. I mean, because you can't think you know him. You know, you, you, you know this, you're an actor. You, you start asking questions. How long has it been? Why am I a driver? Am I comfortable with that? What, why am I comfortable now and I wasn't four years ago? How do I deal with all these people? Am I telling them my personal story? Who's in my life? You know, so a lot of things are exactly this. And, and, and you know, again, as you know, one question leads to another, to another, to another, and you start, you start figuring it out. Or not. You don't well, yeah, well, or, or not. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, because, uh, you know, there are actor friends of mine who uh, will compile a history. They'll write it down. They'll almost invite you to hot seat the character, you know, kind of what school they went to, what mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. Uh, wear, what their likes are, dislikes. Uh, and there are other actors who just work off the page. I was wondering, with this project, did you... Well, it starts with the page. I mean, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. So it starts with the page. And, and and like I said, one question may lead to another. One why and when and with whom leads to another. But you can't figure out ahead of time how you're going to respond. You know, uh, I was reading something this morning about responsibility, and it's it had a hyphen between it. It's, it said, work on your response ability. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, I like that. <laughs> I said, you know, we all need to, I need to work on, forget we all, I need to work on my response ability. So with who he is and who who he is now, we see how he re- responds. Right. We see his response ability. So in, in terms of preparation then, I mean, there's obviously the physical side, which mm-hmm. is there's, to me, uh, this film, uh, there's more action than there was in the first film, but it, it somehow seemed less violent. I don't know if that makes any sense. I, you know, I didn't keep count 
<laughs> no pun intended, but it's so different seeing the film than when you're making it because Antoine's style and all the other elements that he's bringing in and and all of that, you know, I just see the credit cards and things like that. Then you see all the, what the results, it does, you know what I mean? I didn't see, I didn't see all of that. I, I knew he was going in that direction, but I didn't, you don't see that until you see it. I was going to ask you about uh, Anton Foucault because the, this is the fourth time mm-hmm. you've worked with him. So presumably you've built a shorthand with sure. him. But as a producer on both the films, you would have brought him in. So what, what were you looking for from a director, I suppose generally, but more specifically? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, Todd Black and I have, have produced films and worked together, and we, we brought Antoine in on training day. And on training day, his style, his approach... You know, we, we had a, I'm sure I won the Oscar, so it yeah. worked out all right. When my producing partner was developing the, the, the Equalizer, we, we, we talked about different directors and, and we sat down with Antoine and it was like, you know, let's go. What are, we, what are we wasting our time for? And he had such a good take on it. So we trust each other. There is a shorthand. Uh, I leave him alone. I, you know, I can focus on what I'm doing. He leaves me alone. And, and, and we're friends. We work well together. But also, I mean, you've also directed as well, uh, Fences being the last one, which I thought was wonderful, by the way. Thank you. And all the more reason to work with someone, forget trust. I didn't, it was a relief to not have to think about all that other stuff. You know, just concentrate on the relationships, the actors, what I'm doing, and let Antoine make the movie. Because I trust him. But there must be a bit of your head that's kind of saying... A little bit. I mean, what, what, you know, yeah, a little bit. I mean, and, 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 and don't necessarily have to talk about it. Oh, I see what he's doing. Right. You know, I'm, I'm over here. No one goes, man, he sucked in that movie, but I bet he was, you know, I bet he knew every shot or, you know, I bet he was kind to the craft services or something. Um, in terms of the, I mean, you know, his background, Antoine's background was, was music videos initially. So that sense of choreography mm. uh, in shots particularly is mm. always kind of really interesting. He's got a very kinetic style right. of filmmaking as well. In terms of the the action sequences, uh, you and we had a great editor, okay, Conrad Buff, yeah, who cut Titanic, who cut Titanic, yeah, 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 and cut Training Day. If if he could cut, if he, he could have cut a little more off Titanic, I think it would have been. Ouch. <laughs> I'll tell him you said so. <clears throat> I think what he did was great. <laughs> he won a lot of Oscars yeah, too, it worked right? Worked out all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just in terms of the action choreography, because that is. Really exciting. Those are the moments in the film where you know it sparks, uh, etc. And that's a lot of it is in camera, isn't it? It's all kind of real stuff that you can do. I didn't know this wire work and yeah. And and again, I'm he's over there doing all that. So me and Pedro uh, Pascal are, are, are you know doing the nuts and bolts of what we have to do. And I don't have to think about all of that. You know, go back. Going back to your question, I probably there was more not looking over the shoulder, but some of that more on 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 Roman Israel because I just come off of fences, right? Uh, you, you, you know, so but and then there was a, a good period of time after Roman Israel before Equalizer, and he knew what he was doing the first time. Don't 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 start directing now, Denzel. <laughs> Um, you mentioned uh, the, the relationship that you have with the character of Miles, um, uh, Ashton Sanders, who uh, audiences, I'm sure, will remember from Moonlight. He right. played the teenage Sharon. Right. So in the, the, that, the middle part, that was the middle part. Right. Right. Um, how did that casting come about? Good question. I, I, I remember 
I ran into him on a red carpet. And after I, I and so somebody had recorded it and uh, they sent it to me. And, he, and after I walked by, he's like, man, that was, you know, I'm going to work with him one day and da, da, da. But uh, I don't remember. I, I forgot how it first. I, I never read with him. I forgot if it was Antoine or the producer. They said, this is the kid. You, you know, and I'd seen the work in Moonlight. And I was like, yeah, I like this kid. And he just, he has that it factor. He's an interesting, cool, he's cool. He's, 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 but he's, he's young and he's, he's, it's, it's all happening for him now. And so it was, it was good. So he said, just, I just wanted to be clear that <clears throat> uh, him saying, on a video that he was going to work with you someday. Did that have an impact? Yeah, he on- just happened to be on the... It was an award show or something, and he happened to be on the red carpet as I was walking by. And I, you know, I knew him from Moonlight, so I tapped him on the shoulder, and he was real cool and everything. And then I was with my wife, I think, and we walked away, and he was like, oh, he started cursing. Oh, blank. It, you know, that was blank. Oh, blank. Oh, he was just... I'm just, I'm just trying to work out if I say that on a video, <laughs> what are my chances... Fair enough. <clears throat> well, he, well I, you know, I don't even, I have to find out if he auditioned. I don't even know he had, to, or if he just met Antoine. I, I don't remember how that went. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, he's got to say you, you, you need to audition now, but. Oh, now I have to audition. Uh, well, that changes no, things. No, you don't, you don't have to. <laughs> you understood that one, I right? did. I got that one loud and clear. <laughs> Um, your chemistry with him is, is great. It's a very easy chemistry. And I just wondered whether, traditionally on films, there isn't rehearsal time as such. Did you build in time to have that rehearsal with him? Just sort of happened in the gaps. You know, I mean, we did a little rehearsal ahead of time, but just in the gaps and talking every day. And is the lights just changing? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I thought it was, is that me or did the lights I was just, just trying to change the mood. Oh, okay. <laughs> or is that, was that a hint? No, you you know, first couple of days you're working things out or whatever, but you're talking and you're talking and he's asking questions and I'm watching, you know, how he's working. And I remember one 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 shot, he he said, oh, man, I'm sorry, cut, cut, I'm sorry. And I was like, huh? that's where the director came out. And I said, like, let's see what Antoine's going to do. But I already knew. I said, never cut, son. The mistakes are the best part. <laughs> so if you're, he said, yeah, but I didn't do what I said. If you're that aware of it, then you're not doing anything but listening or watching yourself. It's great. So he started there and, you know, just let it grow. What What do we see you in next? Are you pl- planning to die? I'm unemployed. You're unemployed? Yeah. I'm talking with Bob Zemeckis about an interesting project, but right now I'm unemployed. Directing? No, gonna- no. Not, not, not anytime soon, no. Just finished a play, uh, uh, 1st of July, Iceman Cometh, and uh, Equalizer 2, doing that business work right now. That's over today, and relax the brain for a week and then start reading equalizer three that's up to the people that's up to the public well i i'm i'm the public yeah 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 do it well you know it's so interesting you said that because of that role that they've written for you (laughs) i was like well the role's bigger than mine they said yes that's that's true because we feel we, we know this young man is coming on and you don't know about the sacrifices that he made with his wife and allowing her to go on and do the play she wanted to do. We feel it's his turn. I said, fine, I'm fine with that. Uh, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, that's actually what this meeting's about. You're out. You won't be in Equalizer 3, but... Uh, Short, tubby Indian guy will. Exactly. 
<laughs> you didn't have to agree that quickly. Uh, oh, you mean about the short part? <laughs> no, see, so that's you now. You you get sensitive about that. Though. I'm not sensitive about it. I'm gonna. They're gonna switch the lights off on me yeah. in a second. Are they so. giving you a? <laughs> but Denzel Washington, really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'll see you at work. <laughs> that's legally binding. I think. <laughs> Thank you. Denzel Washington. What a jovial fellow. He was great yeah. fun. He was great fun, as you can tell. Um, well, Equalizer 2 is out next week, so you'll be reviewing it next week. Yes, indeed. Of course. Uh, if you're wondering about the cricket, there ain't no cricket going on. It's still raining uh, at Lords in London, so they are still inside playing board games. I bet they're onto the kaplunk now. Um, so, uh, Robbie, tell us about something that's out this week. Let's talk about The Negotiator, which kind of sounds like a Denzel Washington film. It does, doesn't it? Denzel Washington is. I'm a negotiator. negotiator. You better sit down. I got uh, something to say. This is John Hamm is a negotiator. And when John Hamm is a negotiator, he's actually a negotiator. It's not some kind of a classy title. This is his job. He's a negotiator. It's a, a period political thriller set in the 1980s, directed by uh, Brad Anderson, who's not a particularly well-known name, but he's, he's made a lot of incredibly well-done thrillers. The Machinist was kind of, I think, still the highest profile, but he did a great film called Trans-Siberian about 10 years ago that went straight to DVD over here and really shouldn't have done. And he kind of pops up here and there and makes interesting films. Stonehurst Asylum was his last one. I mean, he's also done um, episodes of The Wire. Yeah, right. He's worked a lot in television recently as well. And he just has a kind of an intuition for thrillers that that tends to pay off well as it it does here. Uh, It's also written by Tony Gilroy, who did the original Bourne trilogy, did Rogue One, and also crucially did Michael Clayton, the George Clooney legal thriller, which is, I think, a close cousin of The Negotiator. Now, John Hamm plays uh, Mason Skiles, who is a former diplomat who was based in Beirut in the 1970s. And through this kind of well-meaning but cataclysmic error of judgment, his career out there ends in disgrace. He's moved back to the United States. um, And then we sort of catch up with him. This is after the very brief prologue on the film. In about 1982, when he is single, he is an alcoholic. He's working as a a kind of industrial intermediary in arbitration cases, not having a great deal of success. Uh, then the US government calls, comes calling and says, we want you to come back to Beirut because there is, uh, well, they bring him there under the pretense that he's going to be giving a lecture. He knows that that's not the case. When he finally arrives in Beirut and meets up with uh, Rosamund Pike, who's playing his kind of official US government minder, he discovers the true nature of why he's been brought there and why it has to be him and uh, and, and no other potentially more uh, in touch um, or, or more kind of recently practiced negotiator, why it only has to be John Hamm's character. Here's the clip of his briefing. Three nights ago, an American was pulled off the street in West Beirut. The next morning, we got a communique from a group calling itself the Militia of Islamic Liberation. Very clean, no rhetoric. They have the guy they want to talk. They want you to broker the deal. They asked for you specifically. Who would do that? We're not ruling out anyone. Everything is in play. What does he want me to do? You're an experienced negotiator. Negotiate. Come on, I'm here because some lunatic pulled my name out of a hat. Look, your kidnappers clearly want to make a deal. They got back fast, they're responsive, they're specific. You you clearly have something that they want. So call their bluff, tell them I'm out. Put the downside of that ring in their ear for a little while. (laughs) Honest to God, I'm, I'm a little surprised. I thought I'd be seeing Cal here tonight. Cal Riley. Cal's the hostage. Okay, so that's personal connection one to the case. 
there are further personal connections that come out in the fullness of time. And the way in which Tony Gilroy's script kind of drip feeds this uh, this extra information, I think it's really skillfully done. You know, it's an intriguing, propulsive story. It, it, it remains completely logical at all times. You never feel kind of wrong-footed or tricked in that way we were talking about earlier. Um, and in, in a way that slightly reminded me of Bridge of Spies, in that you have this this kind of emissary being sent over to this uh, completely unfamiliar environment and having to acclimatise to what's there. And of course, the fact that John Hamm's character um, was working out in Beirut in the 1970s, when the city was, I mean, still a, a tense kind of a tinderbox, but it was a much more multicultural place. <laughs> This is when he returns. He has missed uh, the, the the civil war, and I think seven years of civil war in the in the interim. And uh, Johnny Coyne plays this governmental functionary who meets him off the plane and says, "You know, you've missed quite the civil war." And a, a really enjoyable part of the film for me is watching Mason kind of reacclimatize the city. That you know, the face of it has completely changed. There are buildings that used to be uh, tower blocks that you knew well that are now kind of crumbling rubble, and. Um, that kind of environment is really persuasively recreated. What I think is really interesting, particularly about this film, is that John Hamm has been, since Mad Men finished and Don Draper was consigned to television history and, you know, this kind of iconic character, he has kept very busy. He's done a lot of stuff in cinema. But he's not really had a lead role that has played to his peculiar Don Draper-like strengths until, I think, this. Now, uh, Mason is not a Don Draper rerun, but still there's that same... The, the real pleasure that you get from watching him here is seeing this kind of... Uh, very carefully curated facade of, you know, kind of alpha suavity, you know, the, the the hair, the kind of obviously very handsome face and this kind of golden age movie star look coming under intense pressure and just being about to crack. And so, you know, that plays to John Hamm's strengths very well. It's great to see him sort of doing that again after Mad Men, but in a way that kind of feels uh, cinematically interesting. Now, I don't think necessarily the film around him, it feels quite televisual at times to me. It doesn't kind of have the the sort of visual style of somebody like Michael Clayton that did that great thing that helped George Clooney transition away from, from ER and being this TV star uh, in the same way that we mainly think of John Hamm now into being this fully-fledged kind of uh, screen A-list star. This is not the film that will do that. In fact, I think for, for Clooney, it was probably... Um, it was not Eyes Wide Shut, the one where he's in the boot of the car with uh, with Jennifer Lopez. Out of sight. Out of sight, the, the, the sort of film. So, so that was the film that kind of made you think... This guy's a movie star. This guy's the charisma to kind of fill this this cinema. John Hamm doesn't quite do that here, but it's, it's kind of getting on for it. And it gives me courage that, that he will have a great film career to come. And this, in the interim, for people who admire his work, is is is, is more than sufficient for the time being. Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was um, uh, a bit spy game light. Mm -hmm. You know, the Robert Redford, Brad Pitt, uh, Tony Scott one, which I really, really love. Um, but yeah, I thought it was very watchable and I thought everyone in it was great. Um, fairly satisfying ending. Yes. Um, yes. Unnecessary it's... alcoholism. Well, there you go. That's a short. But very stylish alcoholism. Indeed. Um, so we've still to come. Uh, we have another hour of film conversation, including these reviews. We do We're going to talk about The Meg, Unfriended Dark Web, Pope Francis, a man of his words, The Darkest Minds, The Domestics, and Dog Days. Uh, now, um, The Stath, all right, uh, fights a massive shark for about two hours in The Meg. Uh, which is a new uh, release this week, and I've got a couple of bits of correspondence. Uh, Dear Shark and Not About a Shark. It's clever. Nice. Yeah, clever. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, looking forward to hearing Robbie's review of The Meg in today's show, although the name has got it all wrong. Surely they missed a trick and should have called it Jurassic Shark. <sighs> You see, you see I do, I see. see what he did there? That's Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, don't explain the joke. Okay, uh, that's uh, Neil from Nice, France. Lapsed second trumpeter. Do you have a view on lapsed second trumpeters being 
sort of related to. I mean, yeah, it is a different instrument with a different fingering, but you know, good luck, Tom. It's a, it's a, it's a broad church music instrument. Um, this is from Matt Paul, who says, "When the Meg comes out, can the theme tune music be the words Jason Statham to the Jaws tune, please?" So, Jason Statham. Hope that's clear. Thanks very much. Hello to all the Jasons. Uh, thanks. That's uh, Matt Paul. Thank you. So over to you and the state. Yeah, the Meg. The Meg. 200 miles off the coast of China, a monster stars. That's the setup. And that's that's not even Statham. This is the, this is the creature. Basically, a scientific expedition has uncovered this deep prehistoric trench under the sea that's been masked uh, for millennia by this cloud of, of cold, dense fluid that hangs above it. Now, previously this has been interpreted as the ocean floor. It's not. There's a special little area <gasps> beneath that where the monsters, prehistoric monsters, lurk. Now, this Elon Musk-style billionaire played by Rain Wilson has set up a big um, research station above this and is sending down submarines. And uh, one such submarine makes it down beneath this uh, mysterious curtain and is attacked by an unknown creature. Now, time is short. The submarine is stranded on the ocean floor. Um, oxygen supply is ticking down. Whatever is out there that got them may get them for good. So under such circumstances, where do you go? Who do you turn to? The answer is Jason Statham. Now, this film, we don't have actually have a clip of the Meg, but we do have a, an assemblage of uh, moments from the trailer, which will give you the kind of general gist about how enthusiastic Jason Statham's character is uh, about getting uh, under the water to, to meet this kind of prehistoric creature. Here's, here it is. We have a serious problem. What's up? I don't dive anymore. You're going to tell me a problem. And I'll say no. You're going to offer me money. I'll still say no. You're going to appeal to my better nature. And I'm going to say no. Because I don't have one. Why don't we sit down, we'll enjoy a couple of beers, and then we can get you on your way. Jonas, this happened this morning. Laurie, I have a contact. Oh, it's huge. It's crushing me. There's someone down here. They may have encountered the same species you did down there. It's a shark. It's a megalodon. It's a megalodon. Now, megalodon, megalodon. is... Uh, it's like an, a normal don, but bigger. It's an enormous 75-foot prehistoric shark, yeah. thought to have been extinct, and it uh, turns out it's not. Now, the reason that they've gone to Statham, who plays this kind of Captain Ahab-style, scarred naval, former naval officer called... Gosh, you've elevated Statham. him already, haven't you? Already? Yeah, throwing a little of references to literature, of course. Yeah, no, you can be clever about a film like The Meg, Sanjeev. <laughs> OK, more Captain he's, Ahab he's, than Captain Pugwash. Exactly. Well, I mean, kind of equidistant, really, but he's... Of all the people in the world, like Jason Statham would be the guy who has an a pre-existing grudge against the giant prehistoric shark. Like, this is not news to him that this prehistoric shark is down there. He had a, a, an argument with it five years ago. <laughs> and uh, so so this chance to you know rescue people from it is obviously a, a chance for redemption, for personal redemption for him. Basically, the way in which the story pans out is kind of like Jaws in reverse. And it begins That's with... Wadge. Okay. Swag. Oh, it's the Swag. Yeah, jaw, jaw yeah. in reverse is what. Yeah. Okay, okay. So it's, it is, it's swag is what mm. this film is. Mm. It begins with this kind of crisis rescue at the sea when people, you know, the, the crew are at risk. 
Then it moves to hunting the shark in the open ocean when, of course, the inevitable happened. The shark gets out of the prehistoric enclave and starts causing havoc uh, with general members of the, the, the boating public. And then the climax is what happens at the start of Jaws, which is uh, total chaos on the shore when it finally reaches the, the resort town, although in this case the resort is in China uh, rather, than, uh, rather than America. Um, Statham is paired with this uh, oceanographer called Su Yin, who's played by Li Bingbing. Um, the main reason being that this is a, a co-production between uh, Warner Brothers and a Chinese um, financing kind of consortium body. It's one of these sort of hybrid blockbusters that has been made ostensibly by Hollywood and in Hollywood, but it's for the Chinese market as much as it is for the Western market. And that makes it kind of interesting because there have been a few of these films so far. Um, most recently, Skyscraper, that was another, you know, we talked about it in the box office top 10 this week. There was also The Great Wall recently, which was the dreadful kind of Matt Damon versus uh, Chinese monsters things from a little while ago. Which which did dreadfully, didn't it? It did very badly, yeah. It didn't, it didn't kind of strike any chord at all because the problem for me is when you try to make a blockbuster that is accessible to all audiences and you kind of strip out any sort of sense of style, um, like a kind of a, a peculiar kind of shooting style, or you strip out any kind of cultural touchstones, reference points whatsoever, what you're left with is, you know, by its nature, is, is incredibly bland and incredibly sort of sleek and sheeny and it can be very, you know, elaborate CG and everything. But it can feel quite soulless. And The Meg is the first example of this. That it, I mean, it's not kind of soulful, but there's a degree of soul in it that has not been in these previous examples that, that, that to me suggests, you know, even if we're not in for uh, an era of, you know, a, a second blockbuster golden age with this financing model, some of the films that it produces might, you know, there can be perfectly decent ones. It was, you know, the, the Meg was described in one of these emails as being basically like exactly what it says in the tin, you know, two hours of Jason Statham fighting a shark. And that's, you know, that is what the film is. There are no unpleasant surprises in it. There are no pleasant surprises in it. It's just Jason Statham versus a shark uh, for the duration. Um, and I think, you know, what, what, what else kind of marks this out? Because it's, it's a weird premise for a summer blockbuster. It is quite, quite kind of B-movie-like and quite trashy. And the reason I think it exists is because we have this sort of nine-year history of, uh, you were with the mockbuster scene, these kind of ultra low budget uh, films that are produced by studios like The Asylum, these kind of outsider studios for, for, for peanuts, basically. Um, in 2009, they came up with this film called Mega Shark versus <laughs> Giant Octopus. And I think it was, it was the, one of the first... What not, was that about? Well, it was about a mega shark, which was actually a megalodon, uh, versus a giant uh, octopus. Ah. And the trailer for this film went viral beyond the asylum's wildest expectations for it, and partly because there was a sequence in it in which the mega shark jumped out of the ocean and actually jumped high enough to eat an aeroplane, like a passenger jet that was passing overhead. So, so you know, these kind of completely absurd things. And then this, this kind of gave birth to a big mega shark versus franchise. You had mega shark versus... Uh, I think it was a, um, a mega shark versus mecha shark was one of them. It was a big robot shark, mega shark versus the hippocrocoduck and all these kind of weird, you know, creatures. There was also this parallel thing of like they, they did a film. This is all the asylum because the thing is they knew this is viral. This is this is stuff that can market itself. They did a film called Two Headed Shark Attack, that was followed by Three Headed Shark Attack. Uh, the, the tagline for which was more heads, more deads. Then they skipped four-headed shark attack to go straight to five-headed shark attack. I think six-headed shark attack is in the works. But anyway, there's this kind of mood music of deranged shark films that's been going on. Six-headed shark attack. Six-headed shark attack. And you just add another uh -huh. another head every time and then it can eat Still, one more person. So one thin? 
but Hollywood is well. Good question. I mean, it must be one. What? Yeah, one. One fin on the top, and then one tail, and then six heads. Six brains. I mean, oh, is there have one you seen these films? Sh- no, I, I haven't. I don't know if there's, I, there's I, one brain. Am I, am I elevating it to a literary level? <laughs> there's, listen, there's no kind of Moby Dick resonance there. But the thing is, all of this has been taken away, and obviously someone in Hollywood has noticed, if you do something daft with sharks, people will share this video around, it will kind of, you know, it will have a certain viral quality. But Sharknado also comes Yeah, right, and of course, trend, of course, the Sharknado franchise as well, which is on its something like sixth instalment now as well. So there's this idea that it's like a mockbuster in reverse. They're kind of dredging the sort of trashiest aspects of the the film ecosystem in order to make something that does genuinely feel like a kind of a glossy, big budget pro- product. And, you know, it is entertaining and it does pass the time. You do see Jason Satham fighting a shark a lot. He does jump at one point. I don't know if that's intentional or if it's just kind of something that happened and, they, you know, if, if there's a subtext to that or not. It's, you know, if you think you're going to enjoy this film, you will. If you're not sure you're going to enjoy this film... You won't. That's what it is. It's just the Meg. Well, we just we got a text from, uh, this is from Tony in Litchfield, who said, uh, just seen the Meg with my teenagers. They loved it and spotted the Jaws reference. I was surprised how much better it was than the reviews suggested. Great summer film. Listening to your show now. And kids said I should text in. Tony, smart kids. Thank you very much. Um, now, we had a, did we have another? Did I do the, the other Meg one? No, I didn't. We got another... <clears throat> Where's the other Meg one? Tell me something about uh, Jason Statham. Yes. He's got a built-in audience, hasn't he? I mean, one of the things that, you know, with his films is that they have kind of, they know that there's going to be a good opening weekend and then it kind of tails off. Is this going to follow that model, do you think? I don't know. It's it's difficult to say because the film was not, I think, tracking that well in the United States. Clearly with with a film like The Meg, when when it's an international co-production, they're going to be less concerned about one individual market than its performance all around the world. So even if it doesn't open quite as big as it might have done in the United States or in the UK, that will be made up with, you know, whatever it opens with in China. I'll be really interested to see how the Chinese box office take compares to the American one, given that those are the two key markets for which this film has been made. Do we know how well Jason Statham films have done in China in the past? I don't, off the top of my head. I'm not sure. I think the thing is with Jason Statham is, you know, he does what he does. And, and there's something that he he's called upon to do in this film is that he has this kind of very chaste chemistry, but still chemistry with Li Bingbing's character. And he also, she's a single mother and she has her daughter on board the research station because, goodness, if you're researching kind of prehistoric sharks, why wouldn't you bring your three-year-old kid? So she's running around and he gets to kind of have some some fun kind of, you know, that kind of action movie with with young kid, action movie star with young kid thing, he does very well as well. So it's, you know, it's Statham being Statham and it's the giant shark being the giant shark. What more can I tell you? I don't think there's anything more, anything more you need to say. Now, this is from uh, Chris Howarth, who says, Dear Footlong and Sub of the Day, I'm an MTL and FTE, and according to the iWitter app, one of only four Wittertanies stationed on the Danish mainland Jutland. Famous for a naval battle, First World War, isn't that? That's right. Jutland. Um, uh, unless it's Jutland and not Rutland, where the Ruttles come from. Anyhow, um, my wife and I moved here over two years ago to work for a large toy company. Since then, we've had a baby daughter, congratulations, which has meant cinema trips have become a rare treat. This week, the in-laws have been visiting, giving us the opportunity to take one of these rare trips to our local biograph. Uh, when discussing what film we should go and see, my mother-in-law revealed she has ma- only made a total of two trips to the cinema in her entire life. Once in 1973 to see The Exorcist. Just leave a little gap for Mark to kind of recover. And then again in 1993 to watch Schindler's List. 
That's that's a double wow, whammy, isn't it? Right, okay. Uh, unfortunately, she must have been busy in 2013, as she didn't make it to the cinema that year, and thus keep up her 20-year cycle. Perhaps her next visit will be in 2033. Anyhow, as my wife is a huge shark fan, we of course opted for the Meg. Not in the league of The Exorcist or Schindler's List. However, no, not quite. <laughs> however, we enjoyed it. Why? Because it's the Stath battling a 70-foot prehistoric man-eating shark. That's why. Not sure what Robbie will say, but we've heard what Robbie will say. But we reckon it probably is about a shark. Is it about a shark? It is. It's a shark film that is about a shark. Just a very big shark. There you go. That's uh, That should have cleared it up for you, Chris. Tinkety Tonk and all that, uh, says Chris. Uh, and uh, just in case you're wondering about the cricket... They're still not playing. They've moved from Kerplunk to Buckaroo now. That's what the Indian team and the English team are playing, Buckaroo, at Lords, waiting for the rain to stop. Um, We've got time for another film. Yes, OK. Let's talk about The Darkest Minds, which is a young adult science fiction adventure in the tradition of The Hunger Games, Divergent and so on. It's very, 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 very much in the tradition of The Hunger Games, Divergent and so on. It's based on a novel by uh, Alexandra Bracken, which is the first in the series, of course, because all of these things are based on novels that are the first in the series. And the premise is it's set in the near future um, in which a plague has killed off most children in the world. And the ones that are left behind, uh, it, the, the plague has kind of drawn out these uh, superpowers in, in, in the survivors. Um, now, these superpowers change your eyes a different colour when they, when they activate. And there's basically a sort of a spectrum of, of, of options. Most people um, who survive have green eyes, which makes them uh, slightly cleverer than, than they were previously, or in some cases, much, much cleverer. Uh, people with blue eyes get the ability to use telekinesis. They can move objects around with the power of their mind. People with yellow eyes can manipulate electricity. Uh, and then there's Ruby, who's played by Amanda Stenberg, the, the, the star of the film. She has orange eyes, and that gives her the very rare ability um, to psychically manipulate people. Now, clearly having all these kids with these magical abilities running around the place is completely un- unsafe. That's out of the question. That can't happen. So the government decides to inter them all in concentration camps. So a large part of the, the film is taken up with Ruby and friends' attempt to outwit the government and also bounty hunters uh, such as Gwendolyn Christie's Lady Jane, who is hot on their tail in this clip. I'm Liam Natsu. This is Chubbs. Chubbs? Charles to you. Yeah, it used to be a bit beefier. Zoo can back me up in that one. Hey, Zoo. What's wrong? It's Lady Jane. I told you I saw Lady Jane. Please, you have to let me out before someone gets hurt. Liam, let her out, man. Shut up, I got this. Can you drive? No. Yeah, where are you going to have to? Chubbs can't see more than 10 feet in front of his face. I heard that. Dude, come on, it's just like a bike. Tell me you've ridden a bike. Of course I've ridden a bike. What's he doing? Driving. This is so not like riding a bike. So chasey, 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 bangy, bangy, screechy. You get the general gist of it. Um, it's the the thing is a one size fits all allegory for being a teen and feeling slightly out of place. You know, um, Amanda Stenberg's character comes out with this line: "They'll never stop trying to find us because they're afraid of us." And that's basically speaking to basically any kind of teenager who feels any degree of alienation, however serious or trivial. That's the kind of feeling it's that's the kind of feeling it's tapping into. Um, unfortunately, there's just nothing. This is to watch this film is it feels like you're seeing a genre kind of eat itself at the very very end of its lifespan. You know, there's so much in this. 
is enormously derivative, not just of the Hunger Games, but of Divergent, which itself was enormously derivative of the Hunger Games. So you're kind of reaching like the third, fourth iteration of this stuff. And there's just nothing new to be said. The kids are as earnest as they were. They're emoting kind of, you know, intensely all the time. They don't really uh, seem to have much fun in their lives. Everything's deadly serious. Um, you know, teenage romance is this incredibly chaste kind of, you know, longing gazes, but nothing more to it than that. It's, it's, it's the same pattern kind of repeated, repeated over and over again with diminishing results every time. And what it made me think of, because obviously Jason Statham is very, you know, at the forefront of my thoughts this uh, this week, as he is most weeks, but, you know, particularly this week with the release of The Meg, I kind of feel the young adult sci-fi thing has reached a, a comparable stage in its life cycle. Okay, so remember when Lockstock and Snatch came out? Mm. And everyone was like, my goodness, this is a totally new genre, subgenre of, of, you know, British film has come up, this kind of incredibly snappy gangster caper, uh, you know, high comedy, you know, snazzy camera work and, and, you know, choppy editing, all this kind of stuff, all the stuff that Guy Ritchie pioneered. Within about six years, how played out did that genre feel? I mean, everyone just kind of copied and copied and copied until it felt completely worthless. The whole thing had consumed itself. And unfortunately... I think Lockstock and Snatch both really hold up, but they kind of became bracketed with all the nonsense that followed. And the genre was kind of set aside and said, okay, we've done that now. It's, it's, it's spent. It's a completely spent creative force. This, for me, is where young adult sci-fi is now. And The Hunger Games, I will say, is, you know, it's a, it's a terrific series, particularly the, 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 first, the first episode and the final episode, but generally I've really, really enjoyed it. I think it's a real value. I think it's, they're really good films. But what it feels now is that these other films have been kind of leeching off this film for so long that this the whole kind of thing feels completely played out. And you have this, you know, the, the, the DNA, you can follow it back. Amanda Stenberg, who plays Ruby in this, was cast as Rue in the first Hunger Games, you know, the really young tribute. So she has this legacy of being in here. You have a, a head of state called President Grey, uh, played by Bradley Whitford, who is incredibly like a cheap version of President Snow in The Hunger Games, who's played by Donald Sutherland. So again, it's this kind of derivative, boiled down, slightly exhausted. And, you know, I I just don't see who is going to have seen all of these films. You know, you can have stuck with The Hunger Games throughout with no problem. You can have stuck with The Maze Runner with, you know, kind of loads of problems. Divergent even, you know, people could have seen that through. But now this, are we going to do this again? I just don't see the point. But also those three uh, um, franchises that you mentioned all felt slightly different from each other. You know, they didn't feel like they were kind of treading on each other too much. You know, they, there seemed to be a different angle coming in on, you know, generally as they kind of, you know... There the, was certainly, I would say there's a different gimmick in each yeah, one. Maybe yeah, maybe not an angle. It's always about this kind of teenage fights for survival against this adult-run state. Yeah, I suppose, but you can go back in literature and find that as well. I mean, elements of that um, within books and within films that were earlier. I mean, you were describing... The, the setup for this film, I was thinking, wait a minute, isn't that the X-Men? The X-Men were the kids who were kind of had these special powers who have to be hidden away and all the rest of it. And then you going back further, um, you know, uh, Midwich Cuckoos. Into yes, the right. Books, right. You know, it's a bunch of kids and they kind of can't be trusted. And But know, in that one, the kids, the kids were dangerous. <laughs> they, the kids are always dangerous, as you know, as a parent. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, and the thing about, you know, um, Lockstock and that style kind of, you know, it's what you said about Jaws and it's what you said about Jurassic Park. You, you, these things kind of set out their stall at the beginning and do it so well at that point where it's fresh and it's new that anything after that is going to be derivative and it can only get sillier. Yep. And and when you get to a level of uh, these kind of films where the uh, the there is no subtext and people are saying the text, then really is that people have run out of ideas, I guess. Okay. So uh, next film. 
Let's talk about Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, which is the new film from the German director Wim Wenders, who's behind... It is a doc- documentary, isn't it? It's a documentary. It does sound like, you know, Jack Reacher. <laughs> it? Never, never Pope Francis. Like never back down word. or whatever the, the second yeah. Reacher film was. <laughs> it's no, it's not a kind of an action, an action okay. uh, movie featuring Pope Francis, the head of the Roman Catholic Church. It's a documentary by Wim Wenders. Um, uh, he, he directed Paris, Texas, of course, Wings of Desire, but also he has this kind of parallel life of making docs like uh, Pina and the Buena Vista Social Club. Um, this is a portrait of um, the, the man formerly known as uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, um, who became Pope six years ago. The film is made with the um, complete cooperation of the Vatican. It's been rubber stamped by them. That's not necessarily a bad thing, as you see throughout it. In fact, it's, it's in terms of access, it's an incredibly good thing. But you have to remember... This is official merch. What you're looking at here. This is this is the absolute. This is their output, and you know their guiding hand is on it, as as is vendors' own. Um, we can hear. I mean, throughout the whole film, you know, preaching to the converted. I mean, it's it's almost too much of a kind of a um, relevant idiom to even bring up. But that's what this film is doing, and you can hear from this clip of um, Pope Francis talking at the Festival of the Family in in, in the United States, the kind of reception that he, he is generally shown to be receiving in this film. Some of you might say, of course, Father, you speak like that because you're not married. Families have difficulties. And sometimes plates can fly. And children bring um, headaches. <laughs> I won't speak about mother-in-laws. In the family, there are indeed difficulties. But those difficulties are overcome with love. So there you go. That's the Pope's Edinburgh stand-up set this year. A little sneak preview. Um, it's you know it is it's obviously he's playing to a home crowd every single time in this film. But what it, it does very well is it shows you what an intensely gifted public speaker he is. Whether he's in front of an enormous audience like that and his message is being translated on, on the fly, uh, or he's just meeting uh, prisoners or refugees at some kind of a detention centre or uh, or an encampment, he has this kind of consistent ability to ra- land on exactly the right words for exactly the right location uh, for exactly the right occasion so even through all of the kind of um official merchandise stuff that this, this film's got going on you know it doesn't really delve back into his life in argentina at all for example it's not really interested in that it's only interested in what he's done over the last 6 years how his kind of personal theology ties together with his love of the environment his care for uh for refugees for poor for the oppressed and this kind of rejection of the pomp and ceremony of um you know what what we would normally associate with the uh, with with popedom and, and all of the you know the kind of high uh high ceremony that goes on with uh, with that whole kind of office uh that's not his style what vendors does quite convincingly is he says that this isn't you know it's just not down to him there is something kind of consistent there's a consistent theology that runs throughout this and this is what it means he ties it back of course to francis of assisi as well which is where pope francis took his name from um, now, I would say this, there are documentaries recently that I felt more 
spiritually stimulated by that, that, that don't really have God present in them at all. The um, Ryuichi Sakamoto Koda, the, the documentary about the musician Ryuichi Sakamoto, uh, was really, really moving in terms of its exploration of mortality. Or there was Ai Weiwei's Human Flow as well recently, last year, which was really, really good on the, the refugee crisis. So I wasn't quite spiritually as moved watching this as I was, uh, as I have been watching other documentaries recently. But I would say that this, it comes across, there's a real kind of a sense of holiness about um, about who Pope Francis is. Um, he engages during interviews, he will look directly down the camera, he will deliver his message as if he's kind of delivering a personal homily. And, you know, sceptic or believer, it's hard to come away from those encounters in the film without feeling like, you know, this is someone who is speaking from his soul and who actually has a, a view of the world that's very worth taking into account. Occasionally, uh, that reverential approach will trip itself up. He'll say something that deserves unpacking or deserves clarifying, and it just isn't, because Venders isn't interviewing where he's saying, you know, oh, when you say that, can we just go back and explain or clarify or, you know, just make sense of this point further? Just what he says is what goes. Providing you're okay with all of that, this is still a really interesting encounter with the subject. And that is Pope Francis, a man of his word. What is it about German filmmakers who can make films and movies and documentaries also? No? I don't know. My Wim Wenders impression. Uh, that went for nothing. It's Robbie <laughs> Collins. It's, it's, it's a close cousin of your Werner Herzog. It is, it is. Uh, it's Robbie Collins and Sanjeev Bhaskar in for Simon and Mark on Five Live. And um, Robbie, in the next half hour, we'll have reviews of what? Yes, we're going to talk about uh, Unfriended, Dark Web. Uh, and The Domestics and Dog Days. Uh, time for TV Movie of the Week, and some of you have been guessing what Robbie will pick. Chris Moody says, I will be recording from up on Poppy Hill, uh, a Ghibli blind spot for me, and will be eagerly anticipating rewatching The Descent, a blindingly good horror film with barely a male character in sight. The uh, ending is amazing, original, not the US version, right up there with The Mist as a gut punch that floors you in the final frames. I reckon Robbie will pick Fruitvale Station. Uh, ben J. Oram says, Haywire is underappreciated and deserves more love, but with Cher back on screens in Mamma Mia 2, there's no better time to revisit one of her most memorable performances in Moonstruck, a wonderful and hilarious rom-com. It's also a reminder of how great Nicolas Cage can be. John Watson says, only one winner here, and it's Mario Bava's brilliant Fumetti masterpiece, Danger Diabolique. Uh, with Marissa Mel. Plus a big shout out for The Descent, which is one of the best horror films from the 2000s. And John Wimbush says, from up on Puppy Hill, because it is warm-hearted and lovely, and will have you whistling sukiyaki every time you step out to the shops for weeks afterwards. One other one, John uh, McBrain, who says, I like About a Boy, and it stood the test of time pretty well, but my choice for TV movie of the week is The Descent. I hope it will be Robbie's choice too. What is your choice, Robbie? Well, I'm with Chris and John. It's from up on Poppy Hill. Um, mm. Film 4 are doing this entire comprehensive Studio Ghibli season this summer called Studio Ghibli The Complete Adventure and From Up on Poppy Hill is one of their least uh, well-known films um, with, without a doubt. It's about these school kids refurbishing a clubhouse in 1960s Yokohama so it's not this kind of big fantastical adventure for which the Japanese studios really known things like Spirited Away or some of that My Neighbor Totoro. There's not really a magical element to this at all. Um, what I find really delightful about it is it's this really subtle and precise historical allegory because you have these kids growing up in, in Yokohama in 1963. So this is just after you know, you have the Second World War, the Korean War. Japan's kind of reeling after these two cataclysmic world events. And then the following year, the country's due to host the uh, Olympics. 
So the country's kind of looking, it's, it's kind of grieving, has this you know, grief-laden past and this hopeful future. And the, the, the main character in this, this girl called Umi, is, is in a similar position because her dad uh, is dead. He died in the, in the Korean War. So she, he, she's still grieving for him. Her mum, on the other hand, has gone overseas to the United States to study. So she's kind of looking outward. You know, it's the, this idea of the nation kind of refinding its place on the world stage after all of this stuff. And it's this very, very smart and subtle like drawing an equivalence between what teenage life is like at that point when you're working out who you are, who you're going to be, and the situation that Japan was in at that point in history. Now, it's it's loaded down with beautiful kind of background details. The Tsukiyaki playing on, on radios and stuff is just one of, one of many. Very, very immersive and beautiful as Studio Ghibli films always are, but this is a great chance to catch one of their lesser known uh, back catalogue, which which I absolutely think everyone should. I mean, everyone should see every Studio Ghibli film, but this is a great chance to see uh, one of the minor ones. And uh, it, it's one that I haven't seen, so right. I, well, we'll check this one out. And when is it on? And can we see it? It is on. What a good question. Let me just <coughs> ruffle through much. here to see if I can find it. It is on one uh, thirty-five a.m. on Tuesday, the fourteenth of August. Correct. On film four. It's, on film four. It's just coming into my mind. Great. It's coming into my mind like that. I don't know how you do it. It's just voices in your head. Uh, And a TV movie of the week, so bad, it's bad. So Lucy Reynolds says, Bride Wars, offensive on every conceivable level. Woody Neenan says, Bride Wars, no true friends ever become that horrifically and cynically hateful of one another. It makes Peter Rabbit look charming. Uh, Stephen Lockridge says, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse should not be on this list. Don't get me wrong, it's no masterpiece, but it is a good, ridiculous, fun film. I would pick... Bride Wars, and I think Robbie will as well. Simon Meadow says, Scott Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse has no right being here. It was an entertaining way to spend 90 minutes and actually does everything it says on the title. Yes, it'll never win any awards or stay in the memory for long, but I, for one, enjoyed it in a similar vein to that of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Bride Wars, on the other hand, oh boy. And uh, Michael Mills finally say, let's not forget... Bride Wars was the film that nearly made Mark quit film reviewing, surely... Nothing can beat that. Can it, Robbie? That was unanimous for Bride Wars, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? Well, look, I'm not going to touch Bride Wars because I know that's Mark's special pet project. Um, I'm going to go with Johnny English Reborn because with Johnny English Strikes Again arriving in October, what better time can there be to not revisit the previous entry in the franchise? What I find so exasperating about the Johnny English films is that Rowan Atkinson is an incredibly gifted physical comedian, a brilliant clown, and there's flashes of that come up in the Mr Bean films and in the Johnny English films. I think in, in Reborn, there's this sequence where he is given a kind of a suggestibility serum where he will carry out commands that are fed to him through an earpiece, as you know people sometimes do. And um, he is being led, I think, to assassinate someone or something like that. But then there's interference, other voices come into it. He starts, then um, Word Up by Cameo comes on the radio. He starts dancing along to the lyrics. Now, let's just make a whole film of that with Rowan Atkinson. That, that is a genuinely funny it's, it's bit. It's hilarious. Yeah. And you get that for about two minutes. And that's exactly what he's just, you know, better at than, than basically anyone just now. And he doesn't do it. And so it's just a bizarre Bond send-up. So it's Johnny English Reborn. But of course, I mean, it's really Bride Wars. But that's that's Mark's, that's Mark's thing. And when can you when can people avoid that? When can you not watch Johnny English Reborn? You can not watch it at 3.15pm on Saturday, the 11th of August on ITV2. Uh, that's uh, TV of the Week. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Back to films. Yes, let's talk about Unfriended Dark Web, which is a sequel to Unfriended, this 2014 horror co-production between uh, Bloomhouse and uh, this uh, Russian filmmaker Timur Bekmambetov. 
Um, it was marketed as found footage, but that's not quite what it is. I think a better way of describing it is shared screen horror. So basically what you see on the cinema screen throughout is someone's laptop or desktop computer display. And the story plays out in its entirety in windows on that display. So via voice calls or scrolling through social media, uh, video calls as well, Skype things, um, you know, text chat, uh, direct messages, all this kind of thing. And you have to, by watching what's going on on this screen, follow along with the story. Now, it sounds incredibly complicated and abstract. Actually, if you have any kind of computer literacy whatsoever, it's amazingly intuitive. And after maybe two minutes of acclimatization, you're following along perfectly. Despite, however, this completely radical form, the, the substance of it is very, very traditional. And that is that you have a small selection of five or six teenagers who are murdered one by one by some malignant force. Uh, in the first uh, film, that force was a supernatural power. In this film, it is something uh, more down to earth. Now, to give you an idea of how this film plays, because the, the format is so unusual, there's a clip here, and the clip is actually quite confusing to listen to, but it gives you a really good idea of how this differs from any other film-watching experience. Kelly? Kelly! Kelly! That's all very dramatic. Right. So you have people talking almost at cross purposes on this video chat there. And the tension is built by the image stalling or smearing or, you know, and then obviously at the end you have the, the kind of classic horror jump scare. But the way in which it gets to it um, is, 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 for me, it's, it's a really kind of interesting, like it's very innovative treatment of the horror genre. Now, one of the talkers there is uh, Matthias, who's played by Colin, um, Wool sorry, Colin Wandel. Colin Wandel? Colin Waldell. Um, and he has obtained this secondhand laptop. Um, and in order to continue working on this app, he's had an idea for an app, which is to translate voice into sign language uh, in, in order to, to kind of present this to his girlfriend, Amaya, who's deaf. Um, this is a kind of a declaration of, you know, how, how much he loves her and he wants to kind of build this for her and then kind of release it into the world to help other people. Um, on this laptop, he decides to have this five-way Skype chat with his friends from around America. And then there's, there's one guy in, in the UK as well. And uh, in order to have a, a game night, so they'll sit and play cards, Cards Against Humanity, and they'll chat to each other. However, he realises that while the laptop is continually stalling, that there must be some kind of problem with the hard disk. So he goes in and he discovers this cache of hidden files, which are obviously, the, the, they're obviously created by someone who's up to no good whatsoever. There's weird kind of surveillance footage. There's some very weird not surveillance footage. Uh, there's some very, very strange things in this in this folder. It's also been concealed from sight, so it's obviously not supposed to be found. But he also realises that the, whoever previously owned the laptop has left their social media logins onto autofill. So if he is so minded, he can go into their Facebook account and see what they're up to. 
He decides, of course, to have a look because the temptation is too strong. And it's a decision he very, very much lives to regret, and as do his friends uh, around the world. Now, the, the film is kind of tapping into everything you'd expect it to tap into. The, the, the primary fear it's kind of interested in is this idea that we store so much about ourselves online that it's kind of if someone was to had the the um the motivation to join the dots they could find out enough about us for it to be a serious kind of almost existential threat to who we are you could kind of masquerade as someone else uh you could destroy their life from the inside out so that's part of it and there's also this idea that the dark web which is in the subtitle um there's sections of the internet that we really don't know anything about there's all these kind of weird uh illegal businesses going on strange transactions horrible things changing hands just almost, you know, weirdly through the wires around us, but in a way that we don't understand them. There's, you know, it, it taps into interest about, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrencies as well. That all kind of plays a factor in what's what's going on and this strange stuff that these kids uncover on the computer. But what really excited me about it is it opens up this whole uh, new avenue of horror techniques that you don't really see anywhere else. You know, there are these standard horror techniques like the jump scare, for example. You go into a horror film, you expect at some point to be shocked by a loud noise or... The, the frame will perhaps leave uh, a big empty expanse for something to, to leap into. You know, that trick with the uh, bathroom cabinet mirror where mm -hmm. the door suddenly shuts and something's in there. So these very tried and tested horror techniques that, that scare you. Basically, by having the film take place on a desktop, there's this whole new range of techniques opens up. For example, you can have something playing in video chat but concealed behind another window. So you know something important and suspenseful is going on, but you can't see it properly because there's another window on top. There's this other great thing that, that came across, and it didn't, of course, come across in the clip because the clip's purely audio, but what's going on there is it's this idea of, you know, when you're watching someone via a webcam, you can see what's going on in the room, but you're not necessarily in a position to intervene at all. You you know, mm -hmm. if, the, if the mic's turned off, they can't even hear you. And that, for me, you know, there's that kind of universal human nightmare of being rooted to the spot and seeing something awful happening and, you know, trying to trying to move and not being able to. I'm not sure that cinema has ever kind of expressed that nightmare scenario more kind of clearly or directly than in this idea that you're watching a webcam, you're watching someone, you know, go for a shower and kind of wander around, get dressed and blah, blah, blah. And you know something awful is going to happen. You want to intervene and you can't. So... It's this idea that, yes, it's very scary in the moment. I, I mean, the, the story itself is neither here nor there. I've kind of half forgotten it already. You know, it's, 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 like I said, it's about nasty things happening in horrible corners of the internet. It's not something that will really stick with you. But it's the technique. It's the fact that it's scary in the moment. And why is it scary in the moment? Because it's doing these things that other, horror films have not been able to do with a different format. So I think if you're interested in the mechanics of horror, it's very, very worth seeing this, even though it's possibly not a horror film you know, like Hereditary, for example, that has got these great rich characters and incredible story ideas that are going to stay with you for years and years and years. The technique here is interesting enough to, to, to merit going along to see by itself. Are you saying that the, the, the technique of the film uh, is enough to make it enjoyable? Yes, I think it is. Over because it's, beyond the story and performances? Yeah, and there have been other shared screen horrors before, obviously, the original and friend. I think there's another one coming out called Searching quite soon. Um... But just, you know, it's it's the novelty of the experience of watching a whole story play out and being completely able to, you know, you're absorbed enough in it to be terrified by what's going on. Just purely on a computer screen, for me, is really, really exciting. Well, I mean, it, it certainly makes it contemporaneous, doesn't it? I mean, yes. Because that's very much now. I mean, we've we've had those kind of moments in films where somebody's watching body cam footage or CCTV footage where you can't do anything about it and people are being kind of like, you know... Uh, eaten or beaten up or killed or, you know, uh, gruesome things happening. It, the difference uh, from what you're describing is when this is happening in your own space, 
that's the thing that makes it terrifying. Yes. Is that you're watching it in your room and suddenly you're surrounded by everything that's kind of make that makes you feel comfortable and secure. And to the 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 uh, horrible nastiness gruesomeness that happens, uh, would it be a spoiler to say is it from you know a a, a Baba Hotep type kind of malignant thing or is it it's, people, it's is grounded it? in in the real world. It's to do right. with v- deeply unpleasant videos being being trafficked. Right. Okay. So it's but it's people. I don't yeah. I, Soil, I don't want to kind of say more about people. what the, the, the content of the videos is, but it's 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 to do with that. And it's this idea that you know, this environment is really familiar to a lot of us. We spend a lot of our time online and on social media, particularly. Um, these are familiar places to us in the same way that you know a horror film set in a school can be scary because oh, we all remember mm-hmm. being at school. We all know what it's like to kind of scroll through someone else's Facebook page and see these kind of parts of their life that we don't necessarily know what they are. And then, of course, this speak, film... Speak for yourself. I don't scroll through other people's Facebook. Well, you know, not obsessively, but just if, you know, if you're kind of on social media, you're seeing things about other components of other people's life that you don't necessarily have a, you know, a personal connection to. Mm-hmm. And in this, it's able to kind of seed scary ideas by placing things on feeds that it will then call back to later. Um, in this way, that it, it just makes those environments scary in a way that is, is to me, felt very fresh. Cool. That's Unfriended Dark Web. On yes, to another movie. Okay, let's talk about The Domestics, uh, which is another horror film. It's a post-apocalyptic survival horror thriller, uh, very, very much in the style of George Miller's original Mad Max film, except this one is set in the uh, US kind of, what do you call it, you know, the kind of flyover part of the United States, the middle bit, Mm. kind of middle America, Mm. um, after a government-sponsored chemical weapons attack in which the entire country is basically civilization falls. And uh, society breaks down into these deranged cult-like factions with names like the Sheets, uh, the Cherries, the Ploughboys, the Gamblers and the Nailers, all of whom have this kind of fanatical devotion to their their causes and are going around, you know, feuding over territory, trying to capture territory from each other, capture resources from each other on this kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland. Now, there are certain people in this environment who do not subscribe to any of these weird creeds. And they are known as the domestics. And the, like the, the lead couple in this, Nina and Mark, played by Kate Bosworth and Tyler Hoechlin, they are looking around for some sort of semblance of pre-catastrophe normality. They want to get back to a stable suburban life where they don't have to worry about survival every other minute and where they can build a new life for themselves. Now, early on in the film, uh, Nina and Mark come across another couple, played by Lance Reddick and uh, Dana Gurger, who seem very much on the same level as them. They're not affiliated to a gang. They're just trying to have a nice life for themselves. And they go for dinner with this couple at their house. And then, unfortunately, that dinner is intruded upon. And that's what's going on in this clip. Didn't expect to see me again, did you? Should have finished the job. It's okay. Mommy's here. You're going to be okay, baby. Please don't hurt her. No, what do you want? Anything. Just don't hurt my... Him and her. They're yours. Just give me my daughter. Daddy. It's okay. Mommy's here. Do. Do what you gotta do. Just give me my daughter back. Just give me my. Just give me my daughter back. Okay. So the director of The Domestics is Mike P. Nelson, who's a former sound designer and Foley artist, basically the guy who like, sticks an axe into a watermelon or to make it sound like someone's head's been cut off. This is his feature debut. He's written and directed it. 
Um, I have to say it's a really, really impressive piece of work. Um, it's shot by Maxime Alexandre, who did Alexandre Aha's Haute Tension. Uh, you know, the, um, goodness, what was the, the English title? Switchblade Romance, this <laughs> kind of incredible visceral French horror film from a while back. So it's got this kind of serious horror artisanship at the core of it. Um, for me, it's just this, it builds this beautifully kind of horrible um, alternative US that is tapping into, in the same way that George Miller's Mad Max, the initial Mad Max, was kind of keyed into road rage in, in, in Australia and kind of horrible traffic accidents. This one seems very, very much tuned to the times in America where people are sort of abandoning previous friendship groups in order to fall into certain political factions. You know, they, they will see people as sworn enemies that five years ago they were perfectly content to, you know, pass in the street and, you know, be friendly with and shake hands with purely because of their political alignment. So it seems very, very key to this particular moment in history. It doesn't dig into that quite as much as I would have liked. It's not, you know, Trey Edward Schultz's It Comes at Night, which is another recent American survival thriller. That seemed to get on, on board with that more, but it does it more successfully than the Purge films. I think it says more about the, than the Purge films do, while also having this incredibly stylish and visually memorable horror landscape on which it takes place. I was really taken with this, with I had no expectations for it whatsoever and was, was generally pretty impressed. That's the domestics. That is the domestics. Um, we've got maybe, should we try to fit one? We'll try to fit in Dog Days. Yes, let's and, try and squeeze in. And anything we don't manage to say here, we'll, we'll say in the podcast. Yes, that sounds good. Okay, so this is an ensemble romantic comedy directed by Ken Marino, which centres on the interconnected lives of some dog owners in Los Angeles. And I mean, I would summarise the plot, but it's kind of almost not worth it. It's just, you know, this kind of usual multi-strand thing where you have, okay, so there's a, there's a breakfast TV presenter who has to get on with her new co-presenter, new co-host, but um, she kind of rubs up against them, but oh, do they fancy each other? Maybe they do. They both own dogs, so they have to walk the dogs together. And it's just, you know, things like that over and over and over again. It's made very much in the style of late period Gary Marshall. So these films like Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, Mother's Day that are built around certain festivals and seeing all these people, um, you know, muddle their way through these things. And, you know, this kind of romantic uh, and uh, familial strife that all comes good in the end. I can't imagine why anyone would sit down after having watched any of these Guy Marshall films and think, do you know what? We should do one of those, but with dogs. But that's honestly what they've done. It's, it's And even the title, Dog Days, suggests to me that it's been lifted from, you know, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. This is overtly in the same tradition as this. They even end with that same bit of, you know, having outtakes from the making of the film where the dogs are running around set licking people and people are sort of fluffing their lines and coming up with alternative funny lines, none of which are really any funnier or less funny than what's in the film. I mean, what I don't understand about Dog Days is who it's for. It's kind of has this sort of tone of, it's a 12A certificate by the BBFC. It's, um, it's got moderate sex references and drug references in it. So it's obviously aimed at a uh, notionally teen to adult audience. But all the characters in it behave like five-year-olds. And the entire thing is shot with this kind of intensely kind of dentist's chair lighting, bright. Everything. It just looks like a kind of a living uh, poster for an ISA or for uh, life insurance or something like that. It doesn't look like a film. It's just people with big smiles kind of strutting around in this endless sunshine, walking dogs, having these kind of trifling conflicts with each other, which are then, you know, resolved at the end of the two hours. I just don't understand who's supposed to watch this. It's not a terrible film, but it's just not kind of anything. Well, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. And Robbie, your movie of the week is? The Domestics. Thank you for listening. Robbie will be back next week with Ramesh Ranganathan in the presenter's chair and special guest Emma Thompson. So the great beauty of the podcast format is yeah. that you can really dig into big issues that you don't have time to tackle uh, while you're on air. 
And so let's now really set out the plot of Dog Days in, 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 in extreme detail, shall we? Yes, please. Yeah, yes. okay. So this is um, the main plot thread that I kind of mentioned hmm. is you have Nina Dobrev playing this breakfast TV presenter who gets a new coat. Sorry, that sounded like Dog Breath. Dobrev. Thank you. It's, I mean, maybe, you know, there's Finn Wolfhard. He's also in this. Maybe they just cast people with doggy connections in their names. I don't know. Um, and Tone Bell, do dogs wear bells? <clears throat> yeah, some do, yeah. Okay, uh, uh, St. Bernard's. Right, perfect. Brandy okay, so and Bell. Clearly, yeah. this, is the, this is the kind of... Bell and Sebastian. Mm. That was that a bell? Well, yeah, it's Bell and Sebastian. Okay, so, okay. so they have this love-hate-on-air relationship. And because they both have to walk their dogs together, because apparently this is, you know, if you have dogs, you bump into people, other people with dogs all the time. Um, it's the dogs that kind of, you know, smooth over the cracks and allow them to have a, a flourishing professional relationship and also perhaps a little more. And here's a clip of that magic chemistry in action. Now, this is me and Brandy spot. And that right girl. Wow, so many kids out here. All my friends are having kids right now. My whole family? Ask me all the time what the holdup is. Yeah, what is the holdup? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Mm. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing is wrong with me. Just have a cheating ex-boyfriend. Sorry. Thank you. <clears throat> but seriously, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Already? <laughs> Playing ball? You know how it is. So I think I'll give it another try. It's hard to compete with a lady like Brandy. This is still just a, a dog date, right? Yes. Still just a dog date. Still just a dog date. You see, this is, I mean, that's just like how we talk when we take the ferrets out last week. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of amazing sort of personal chemistry that leads to on-air magic. That's, and that's just one thread of this. You have this other thing where um, Eva Longoria and Rob Corddry play, play this couple who adopt a young girl. She befriends a stray dog, which in turn was being, has been lost by its owner, played by Ron Cephas Jones who is looking for the dog with his pizza delivery boy for some reason, who's played by Finn Wolfhard. Then you also have this layabout guy called Adam Pally who has to adopt his sister's dog because she's having twins. She doesn't have time to care for it. That's the thing that forces him to sort of step up and recognise that life is better with responsibilities, blah, blah, blah. Now, all of these stories... I mean, this film is like, what, an hour and 50 minutes long. It is not... It's an by hour any, and 20 minutes too long. It's not by any stretch short, right? But because it's handling so many stories... It, it grinds through them and then by the end they've barely moved an inch. I mean, there's so little has to happen in this film for it to get to A to B and it just labours and labours and labours. The problem is, if you're doing a big multi-part narrative like this, what are the forerunners you're looking to for inspiration? Paul Thomas Anderson, Magnolia. Mm. Peak Robert Altman, you know, Nashville, mm. Shortcuts. Now, these are toweringly high standards to aspire to. If you're not operating on that level... You will not tie up a, a story like this in an interesting way. And my word, this is some distance from peak level Robert Altman. You know, you know when you're a kid, right? And um, you went to, you know, you had your school friends and you went to their house, maybe during the summer or something like that. And, uh, you, know, you know, you didn't know them very well. It's usually the first time you go to their house and, you know, their, their mum's there. It's usually the mum who was there during the day and you went in and you played in the garden and stuff. And then she kind of said, would you like, would you like some, something to drink? And you don't want to be in trouble. You go, you go, yeah, if that's okay, you know, water. She says, would you like some orange squash, perhaps? And you kind of go, yeah, or some blackcurrant or something like that, some cordial. And you go, yeah. And then, you know, they go, there you go. And you take it and you realise that they put in like a tenth of the cordial <laughs> yes. that you normally have. Do you know what I mean? I and know. then you drink it and you taste it and you kind of go, 
That's just horrible. I mean, it's it's not it's not awful because you've got a hint of orange, you've got a hint of blackcurrant or something, but it's just kind of insipid and over diluted, and you drink it. And it kind of, you know, fills you up a little bit or cools you down or whatever. But you kind of go, that was really pointless. Yeah. Yep. That was really, really pointless. That's what this film is. Plot span 74. Fit got- tab cliche into tab chestnut. Yeah. That's what this film I mean, it's, I mean, I made a couple of notes, you know, that you've got the schlubby guy with a rock band. Uh, you've got, uh, as you mentioned, the morning show host. But a who's... rock band that plays Right Said Fred covers. Yeah, and I, I mean, if, if if they'd sort of made something of that, that's potentially very funny. It's just, I mean, and, uh, you know, you've got the, the couple that you mentioned who've, who've adopted. The, this little girl, who's probably about six, five mm-hmm. or six or something, uh, arrives at their house. And it's like, it's the first time she's met them. They, you know, they kind of going, well, you know, you, we understand you like blue elephants and not pink elephants and you can call me mommy and you can call him dad and you kind of go wait a minute didn't you sort this stuff out when you signed the forms now it's kind of what what is this a catalog (laughs) child that's kind of like you know who starts talking when the dog appears you've got the um the, the side characters that you have in these things who always tell it like it is usually some kind of sassy friend who happens to be perhaps you know your makeup person or your best friend who works with you at the coffee shop. You know, it's all that stuff that kind of, you know, attractive girl at the coffee place fancies the vet across the road. But the slightly kind of down and beaten, slightly square guy who looks after animals, who's really nice, likes her. Where's that going to end up? Everything was just hurtling towards right, and this is the what bleeding I mean, obvious. The plot has so, there's so little space for it to move. You know, that story, the Vanessa Hudgens story with the, the, co- the coffee shop girl. There's Vanessa Hudgens from High School Musical, who I think is, you know, has not in any sense had the success of Zac Efron, but I think she's a phenomenally appealing screen presence. It's, just, it's a pity that she's kind of ended up in stuff like this. Her story has to move from fancying Gentleman A to fancying Gentleman B. And this takes an hour and 50 minutes because there's so much other nonsense to fill around it. But all of this other nonsense around it is also inching forward in tiny, tiny increments. It's just not interesting. Yeah, but in, in incredibly predictable ways. Yeah, right. Things, right. I mean, your predictability doesn't need to be... You know, terrible. You know, Oliver Hardy with loads of bricks falling on his head. You wait for that gap so that that final brick falls on his head and it's incredibly satisfying. It's lovely. You know, you talked about Mission Impossible uh, out this week or even uh, uh, Ant-Man and and the Wasp. And there's a certain predictability to those kind of films which you kind of enjoy. Here comes the set piece. Here comes the quirky kind of one-liner. You know, here's the comedy kind of, you know, Michael Peña in the... Uh, Ant-Man films, I think it's genuinely funny. Yes, he's right. a really, really good, funny character. And anyone who's seen the first one knows that he's going to get that monologue. Yeah. And you look forward to it it's and you great. savour it and it's, you know, it's expected. You know, there's a lovely moment with the truth serum thing where, you know, he <laughs> kind of, yeah. he goes into such detail that you kind of, oh yeah, this really is a truth serum. You know, it's kind of, when I was a kid, he was kind of like over here and I'm just, hey, you got to get it. Yeah, and you kind of go, yeah, that's really, really good. You know, I knew that was coming and that's really entertaining. With this, it really was, and I will defend the actors here to a certain extent because you kind of go, you get a script and you've got to make a living, and you know sometimes on the page it looks different to uh, to how it looks when it's shot and everything, and and you are directed as an actor to do what the director wants you to do or the producer wants you to do or what the tone of the film is, and in this one it was almost like none of these stories really kind of knew what the other stories were doing yes and there's no reason that they should be interconnected there's no kind of clever but if you're gonna gonna make a film then tonally you you kind of you know if you take something like um you know uh richard curtis's film you know uh, love actually 
Love Actually. The thing with Love Actually, and, you know, people deride it at the time, now it's this kind of, you know, uh, Christmas classic. But the thing is, tonally, it's very clever. I mean, there's one storyline in it that I really don't like, never liked, and never will. But of all the others, tonally, they they move around. You know, each one is then given space to to have its impact. Yes. And you for know, people like me, you've got Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman. I mean, right. which is which is a lovely story. Exactly. You know, yeah. That that for me is that's the part of the film that works. But it's there. Yeah. And it complements what's around it. And in this, it's just this kind of blanket cheesiness. Let me tell you something. The, 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 this film, your blanket cheesiness sounds like it'd be a nice kind of duvet. Yeah, like a nice a kind, kind of, of a big, comestible a big slice that you can. Yeah. And this is not that. Well, it's not. It's not. But look, at the Cannes Film Festival every year. There's this part of the festival called the Marché, okay? So mm. it's it's literally in the bowels of the building where people will buy and sell from all around the world the, the, the rights to distribute different films. And if you have time, you go down for a browse. There's always this sort of strange subset of films where it's people that you recognise from other real films that you have seen, normally with an animal and normally against a very, very brightly coloured or sunny background. And I've always, you know, I always see these things and think, why do I never see any of these films? What happens to them? This is one of those films. This is this must be what they're like because this has arrived with no kind of fanfare or anything. And the people that, like you say, people that you recognise from you, you've enjoyed their work elsewhere. But it just kind of exists to exist. It exists for people to have had something to do with their time and to earn some money and to have a job. Uh, but the result is just completely nothing. You know, that's, you know, people got to make a living and that's absolutely fine. I think the the biggest insult to me with this film, because it's not a horrible film, you know, it's it's not even a terrible film. It's just a nothingy film. You know, it's like a it's like a cracker, you know, without any cheese on it, without any, but just on its own, a, a piece of a rice cracker. You kind of go without flavouring. You know, it doesn't kind of do anything at all. Is when, and I don't know why filmmakers think of doing this, is when they put, the supposedly hilarious outtakes on the end of the film. This was one I sat through those outtakes. Not one of them was funny. Not one of them was interesting. Yeah, you know, I'm really glad you all had a great time. You all had a much better time than I did. And you got paid. <laughs> and I guarantee the reason That's they did it, all I was the reason they put them in is because that was a stand, like a, characterising feature of the Gary Marshall films, of those day films, Valentine's Day and uh, and Mother's Day. That's what there always was at the end. New Year's Eve, they had the, the bits of people larking around and like tripping over tables and things on set. And it's because it was in those. I don't understand it. I don't know why anyone uh, watch I those films and say, let's make another one, but that's that's what's happened. I, I cannot believe I'm still slightly in shock that it's, you know, got a 12 certificate thing. You kind of go, change two references, uh, more shots of dogs and aim it at five-year-olds. Yep. Make the dogs talk. Make the dogs talk. That, you see, why hasn't anyone ever thought of that? Make the dogs talk so we can hear their thoughts. I have rarely come out of a film wishing that the dogs had talked. But and then after that, do babies. Yeah, right. Babies that you can hear their thoughts. Looked after by three men. <laughs> Brilliant. OK, I think I've got that out of my system a little bit, I think. Um, OK, well, shall we do DVD of the week? Let's. Ah, at this point in the summer holidays, no doubt many of you are feeling the strain of having your beloved children home from school, running around, treading dirt in from the garden, and generally making a lot of noise. 
Perhaps you could take note from the parents in A Quiet Place, who shrewdly convince their children of a humanity-ending apocalypse brought on by superhearing monsters in order to keep them as silent and stationary as possible. Could top parenting tips like that make it your DVD of the week? And what will Robbie choose? Charlie Davies says, I watched A Quiet Place alone, which was a unique experience. When the final shot finished and the screen went to black, I caught myself just saying, wow, several times in a suitably hushed voice, probably more like, wow, wow. One of the most original and intelligently presented horror movies I've ever seen. Robert Carson says, was about to say easily A Quiet Place, but Thoroughbreds was so damn good, with the two best performances of the year in Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy, a tar-black twisted teen thriller for the ages. John David Hall says, Tideland was the film that convinced me I no longer had to watch any of the steadily declining output of Terry Gilliam. I think I managed somewhere between 40 minutes and an hour at the local picture house, so in some respects, I'm grateful for this film. Conor McGale says, Got to be a quiet place, one of the best films I've seen this year and certainly one of the most original horrors in recent years. Special mention, too, for Thoroughbreds, which I really enjoyed. Very much a modern-day Heathers, cult status surely awaits, and it's a fantastic debut feature for Corey Finley. Mark Humphrey says, Baghdad Cafe is a wonderfully odd, funny and heartwarming heartwarming film that's worth seeking out if you're in need of a quirky pick-me-up. Darren Key says, A Quiet Place. There's a nail. There's a nail. But, Robbie, yeah, it's all down to you. It's not a vintage week, is it? I mean, it's got not to be really. a quiet place. Um, I'm really interested to see how that plays in a home scenario because, for me, an enormous part of the, the horror charge of it was that unspoken pact that you have with other cinema goers that nobody's going to make a noise and everyone's going to be quiet and watch the screen pay attention to the film that's something that you know you have that slight tension in the air anyway during any film that you could see at the cinema with A Quiet Place it was completely pinpricklingly palpable because all of the characters on screen were trying to stay of course as quiet as possible so I wonder if watching it at home it will be quite as scary because you don't have that extra chemistry in, in the air with people around you of course if you are watching it well if I'm watching it with my kids that's probably illegal because they're, they're much much younger than 18 but if you are watching it with your kids um, maybe that will not be the case and it will still have that tension. Will it have the impact if you watch it on your own? I don't know. I, I'll be very interested mm. to find out. Ah, OK. Well, that is your DVD of the week. It is indeed a quiet place and that's just about us done. Next week, uh, you will be here uh, with Ramesh. Yes, indeed. Uh, who is uh, darker than I am. He's taller than I am. He's got a beard. So both of you quite tall, beards, glasses... It's going to be the beardiest one of these holiday covers. Well, I think it's it ever could happened. be that kind of you know mirror image thing going on here. It could be complicated. I think that uh, maybe it might be useful to go, perhaps just maybe send out on social media a picture of the two of you just with your names underneath it, so people know if they are kind of like you know. We could uh, pose it up like Bergman's persona with the two faces sort of overlapping, so you don't know where one person ends and the other begins. Oh, that, that's, I think we should do that then. Yeah. Do you do that? Thumbs up from Robin. Okay. It's happening. Fantastic. Let's do that. So um, uh, thank you all for listening and tuning into the podcast next week. It will be Robbie and Ramesh. And until I see you next time, uh, look out for the squirrel. BBC Five Live. Hello, my name is Nihal Arthur Nayaka. The Headliners Podcast. In Headliners, we bring you in-depth interviews, biggest names in entertainment, culture, the arts, including some of these luminaries. Welcome back to the world of music, Noel Gallagher. Robbie Williams. I'm May. How are you doing? Cara Delevingne. Elton, it's been so nice to speak to you. Debbie Harry. Blondie. Hello. Eric Cantona. Got a bona fide legend sitting in front of me. You hear that a lot, Johnny. <laughs> Johnny Mars in the building. Not today. I haven't yeah. heard it a lot today. <laughs> Subscribe to Headliners now from your podcast app. 